0: Welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am decidedly not Tyler Smith.
1: I am David Bax. Tyler Smith is not on Safari. As listeners know, he's back from Safari. He talked all about it last week. He's he just crazy. simply on assignment.
2: <laughs> yeah. He's on <not> assignment.
1: <laughs> no, it was it was Safari. Now it's assignment. He was back in between. I was on assignment last week. Now we're all uh, uh, gathered the, the the people we have gathered today, uh, I don't think we've all been on the show together for a year, right? Correct. Yeah. The last time we did this. Um, and I'm going to introduce uh, uh, all of them. Julie, you said you were not Tyler Smith. You didn't actually say your name.
0: That's true. I was trying to maintain an air of mystery. I am Julie Sosnovich.
1: Okay, that's it. Uh and yeah, so Julie and I are hosting this episode and you two are the guests of this episode. Okay. Just to be to be clear. So that's That's where I've always wanted to be.
0: (laughs) I invited my husband out of charity because like he just didn't have anything to do and like I felt bad. So yeah. I was just like, oh, like we're podcasting. Like if you just want to come along, he just like looked really sad. So <laughs> Scott and I is also here. She
2: told me this in the middle of,
1: um, but you know.
0: Yeah, short notice. Yeah.
1: Well, no, we'll, we'll get to introducing your your, your husband and our, and our other guest in a minute. But first, I want to tell you, Julie, and you, the listeners, about Tweaked Audio. Uh, TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. I could tell you what I was listening to today, but uh, Julie, what if you if you had a pair of tweaked audio.com earbuds, I don't know if you do or not, what would you recommend listening to on them?
0: I would recommend via a shameless plug to check out my friend's band. It's called Super Okay. The letter's okay. Um, they released an album wherever albums are available. Spotify, Apple, all your streaming services of choice. Um, a Title. Um, it is titled... Um, departures It's very kind of like Foo Fighters-y, Muse okay. um.
2: Oh no, oh no <laughs> The music has also killed her
0: It made me so excited Yeah, I couldn't even speak um, But yeah, check it out Wherever you can find music Oh my god, <laughs> TakeOver It's my Take favorite over. plug ever uh, Yeah,
2: they're pretty tight uh, They got the, the usual <laughs> music spots Very Foo Fighters-y <laughs> Um, I'd say a little more proggy than, fu- than even the Foo Fighters. So if you dig a little experimental vibe, they got that going too. uh, the yeah. local LA band. So hoping to try to play some shows pretty soon. Oh, too. nice.
1: Is it uh, one word super. Okay. Or two words. Super. Okay. Two words. Two words. Super. Okay. And then just the letters. Okay. All right. We'll check them out. It, it, and also, you know, check out tweaked, check out tweaked audio.com. I'm sure super. Okay. Will sound more than super. Okay. That sounds great. Out on your audio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at audio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to audio.com and use the offer code pretension. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming
2: about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret?
1: Julie, are you okay?
0: Yeah, I, you know, that was, I just like got something in my throat and it was super embarrassing and we all got to live that moment together.
1: Suddenly taken with consumption. (laughs) I know. What's funny is we're about to talk about TCM Fest and at one of the movies, the woman next to me had the same thing happen, literally like four seconds into the movie took a sip <laughs> it went down the wrong pipe she spent yeah. 40 minutes
3: <laughs> 40 coughing. minutes
1: She's, it felt like she spent half the movie coughing oh my god and then, and then when she finally calmed down she fell asleep and she was doing this thing where she wasn't it, she wasn't snoring but it was like like,
3: hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like a cat like my yeah, cat yeah yeah um and uh didn't ruin the movie for me still ended up being my favorite movie of the festival we'll, we'll get to that later Ooh, uh geez. first i want to introduce uh julie's uh lesser half scott nye hello still and, married. and uh <laughs> joining us once again from nerdist
4: kyle anderson hello i'm also still married although my wife is not here yeah we're all we're all married here. That's weird, uh, <laughs> isn't it? Do you ever think about that? Not How to each other, is.
0: to be clear. No, no, no we are weird, David like, and
4: David and I are married.
0: <laughs> right, uh, right, yeah, yeah. To each other. Mm-hmm.
4: But it, yeah. Anyway, I, sometimes I'm like, that's weird. I'm like married. My birthday's coming up, but I'm going to be 38. That's weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be 40 this year, and I'm uh, a. that's weird. A married man. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's all happening, folks.
1: Anyway, that's 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 what I'm up to. But, uh, is that I'm point, old? At this point, because my wife. My wife and I will celebrate our eighth wedding anniversary Mm -hmm. this year. So we have, it's been for the past few years now, we've been married longer than we had been married. Mm. I think that was a weird thing to realize that the marriage is not, it still feels kind of new Mm. to, to me, but it's almost eight years old. We survived the seven year itch or whatever that the oh natalie's parents loved to tease us about that when we were coming up (laughs) on our seventh anniversary and it was quarantine time so those were itchy times yeah Yeah. that's true that's true um but we're not quarantined anymore whether or not we should be uh we're attending film festivals including the tcm classic film festival which uh the four of us all attended and we saw hella old movies i I mean both hella movies that are old and movies that are hella old uh (laughs) (laughs) in hollywood and highland Um, and like I said, we've rejoined same as we did a year ago to, to talk about these movies, but for the last two years, we've been doing this for, you know, virtual, you know, over the airwaves and HBO max type of festivals. This is the first time being back in person. Mm Uh, and and I, I will say like for years TCM fest in any form is always kind of like restorative for me, like a palate cleanser for me because I spend so much of the first part of every year cramming new movies like because Tyler and I do our like uh our top 10 usually you know pegged to the Oscars so I'm spending the first few months of the year cramming movies from the past year it's a great like splashing cold water on your face to just like dive into like a whole weekend of watching movies that are (laughs) that are old uh and and it kind of like uh uh, it's such a change of pace in such a good way and it refreshes my like faith in movies and, and reminds me of like what uh drawn me to to, to movies over the year and I, and I would say this this year adding that it's also back in person was even though like when i run down the movies that i saw this year this was not the strongest festival year for me uh mm-hmm. in tcm history in my my history at tcm but I was happier to have been there than I maybe have ever been at a TCM fest before. I
4: I feel that way too, um, To in a lot of ways. I think what's interesting, especially last year when they had what was on the television and then also what you could stream on HBO max. So they had a huge swath of movies and there weren't. And I feel like those movies last year were a lot more, I don't want to say diverse, but there was like, tons of different types. It wasn't all just, and it felt like this one, because they were, we were back together, it was a lot of like old favorites and stuff like that, but it was like, it skewed very, like there were tons of pre-codes, which is great. Those are always fun to watch, but it doesn't mean that, but I don't know. It just, it, it felt like, well, there's not a lot of variety here in terms of, you know, um, eras, I suppose is what I mean. Like it's it's, it was really, it really skewed from like 30 to like 60 something is which i guess is like that's what and classic hollywood is but
1: scott uh, if you remember a year ago you gave me trouble for this exact thing for for being the guy who just watches old old shit at the at the festival i did even more so at least last year i watched like news from home this year the most recent movie i watched and the only fully color movie that i watched the entire festival was from 1957 that's that's as new, past, as I <laughs> yeah. But I, like I said, I kind of needed that. Sure. But Scott, you're um you're a little more echoey than Julie. I don't know if you're uh, further away from the mic. I'll, I'll get like, closer. There you go. I'll there you go. Soothe the so, listeners with my that's... dulcet tones. So, um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> harmonized on that. Let's do that. Dulcet tones.
1: Yeah. Julie um, Scott, did you feel have, have, yeah, have similar the Yeah,
0: I um I think the festival. It, it was great to be back in person. Um, but it was like. It was kind of a transitional year in some ways because it's like we had to keep our masks on. We had to do a vax check. Um, the complex it was in was half shut down because they were yeah. doing active construction on it. Um, and then one of the main theaters that they use is closed. So it was like, oh, my God, yes, we're back in person. Kind of. Um, yeah. So, like, it was great, but it was this sense of kind of like we're easing back in. Some things are being worked out, you know. Yeah.
2: Were you guys able to eat OK? Very few food options. No. Um, we no, found
1: I literally was not able to eat okay
4: <laughs> <laughs> we found a japanese restaurant in Ho- hollywood and highland the top floor uh, one the top floor one and in that I place
1: solid place it's a solid place and we oh wait oh cho choishi ishi yeah not japan house which is like i think that's newer yeah that's and, yeah. and i think also quite expensive I... yeah sure.
4: yeah yeah but we went there one time to get a beer my my uh my buddy mike who writes for boulder weekly always comes out and this is, you know, this was his return too. So, like, we did the we did the whole thing up. Even though I, you know, don't live that far away, none of us live all that far away from the theaters. Um, he and I got a hotel room uh, right there on Highland, just so that we could walk and not have to worry about driving back and forth every night, which was super fun. Were you
1: um, at the Lowe's
4: Lowe's Hollywood? No, we were on at the Boulevard, which was just across the street. Okay. Um, which is a, just a, a, just okay hotel. Um, I think if next year we're going to try to get one of those, at least one of those ones on the other side of the road so that we don't have to cross any major streets to get to yeah. the thing. I was, I, I mean, that's fun though. Yeah, it was fun. We, we had a really good time. Um, but so anyway, we were like, um, every morning, like it was like, we go to, you know, Starbucks or whatever, find somewhere to get breakfast and then get in lines. Um, but we were always looking for something close-ish to eat and we found just that, um cho Uishi upstairs and sushi was good. The next day we were like trying to find something to eat and then Mike goes, Well I bet they have ramen and I was like cool. And we just went up there and had ramen. So it was like
1: Yeah. Um, I did eat at the the little pokey place with like the like Chipotle Poke style place like pokey place. And that yeah that that was actually pretty good. But as far as like sitting down and having a meal now you guys know I am generally a big fan of Cabo Wabo, which is of still course. open. And is, I do think is good food. I didn't go at all this year and I'll tell you why (laughs) I walked up to the door and they had, okay, Kyle's nodding. He had the same experience. Yeah. They had a sign on the door. That's like, we don't discriminate on the basis of, you know, sex or gender or race vaccinated or unvaccinated. And I was like, Oh, dog whistle. Yeah. (laughs) Like this is a stay away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I knew because I, during AFI Fest, I had gone there and I was aware that the manager of Cabo Wabo was anti-vax because he was not quiet about it while I was there, but it becomes a different thing when it becomes like signage that's yeah, it's that point. it feels yeah. like it feels like I'm actually like supporting something I don't want to support if I, yeah. if I cross that threshold. So I, it's I'm, I'm bummed because like Cabo Wabo, like the food is good. The price is not objectionable and they had free (laughs) wi-fi yeah Yeah. (laughs) they had free wi-fi it was like such a great place to at a festival at afi or tcm to hang out but i don't think i I don't know if i can go there anymore i have to find a new but hopefully something else will open i've before we even get into the movies i have some bones to pick with hollywood and highland or i guess ovation is what it's a
0: called. very universal topic that all yeah. your listeners <laughs> will appreciate
2: <laughs> i love the local la shit and i did before yeah. i moved here too so i'm sure other people do as well, well yeah i it, mean it's so, still a complex in development for sure
1: it's
0: still in development
1: yes and, the, and it, the new design of it is kind of bland although i did hear one uh uh friend was talking to me about it and said he preferred the like gra- fake grass in the interior to the old fountain that it looked more I kind of me. do too, Maybe. honestly. But I don't spend that much time over there. Well, I, sure. I, what I really have a problem with is that I don't, it seems like there was not, if there was not, because I, I know there's like an, you know, it's a mall and it's called Ovation now. And I know there's like an Ovation ad, administration because I'm like on their email list. I get email <laughs> like blasts from them. I feel like they should have done a better job. And this happened today at Five Fest 2 of communicating to other businesses in the complex hey there's a thing going on that that hundreds if not thousands Mm. of people are going to be at because it seemed like the businesses weren't prepared i felt like wait times were often very long there's the the pete's coffee which is also weirdly a bank um (laughs) there like i almost missed angels with dirty faces because like Cause the teller I, wouldn't get those twenties out fast enough for you. No, it's the thing. There's one person working the coffee stand and there's like a capital one employee. And like, all of us are just like waiting for our coffee and it's taking forever, like 25 minutes for coffee. And the, and the capital one employee is like, yeah, on a Saturday morning, there's normally one person every half hour. Yeah. And it just seems like the, why, if they're not all part of this, if they're all part of this complex, why are they not all aware that there's, Because that's a a a
0: godless (laughs) place. Hollywood and Highland is a godless place where you can expect nothing.
4: (laughs)
1: Yeah. No matter what you
4: call it, it's terrible.
1: Even the Chinese Six on Saturday night had one bartender working. Like, uh, uh, again, like I was, there was a line of people who were trying to grab a drink before going into Portrait of Jenny. And it's like, I felt so bad for this guy. And also, well, on top of that, there were some two ladies who ordered very complex uh cocktails to where this bartender had to keep like going in the back and checking like the recipe book Sure. so there's a line of people piling up behind these two ladies right he's making these cocktails he hands them to them the one takes a sip and it's fine the other woman if you can believe it takes a sip and says "Mm, this is too sweet can you make it again (laughs) just like as people are piling up behind her i i couldn't believe uh The the, the lack of self awareness, <laughs> yes, but also like a Saturday night when it's like I'm sure a normal Saturday night at the Chinese Six, one bartender is fine, you know, yeah. But when you've got again thousands of people, that you that you should just they, they should be able to adjust. um Last thing I'll say about the Chinese Six that I kind of dawned on me. I think Ed Art's also been thinking at AfI fest last year, but. They had this Chinese six multiplex, the six theaters that are kind of attached to the Chinese theater for non-LA people who don't know this thing, um, was built in 2002. I moved here in 2005. And so it was still like new. I remember going to see like Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix and, and, and seeing like The Strangers or whatever. Like it was a, like a new multiplex. And I've been going so regularly that it, I think it took the two years of the pandemic for me to come back and be like, oh, this place is beat. Like yeah, this place yeah, yeah, yeah. Use, I felt the same way. Yeah. It, yeah, this, this place could use a new coat of paint or like it's 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 run down the theater. But I've been going for 17 years, so I didn't realize.
4: And they need to refurbish the seats too, I have to say. Like I'm usually yeah. very lenient on theater seats because you know, uh that's part of the experience a lot of the time. But like after a weekend of sitting in those, like my my legs and butt were oh, my sore. Was
1: feeling I it. couldn't
4: yeah. it was so and then I only ended up seeing one movie at the um, uh, uh, the Legion and was just like, oh, these seats are amazing because they're like yeah. newish and stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. The Legion's nice. I saw two things there. And there's but- plenty of leg room, which is nice.
0: Also, to your point about the seats, Kyle, I don't know if you remember, I think it was at one of the movies we saw together. I sat down and like my armrest was up. Uh (laughs) Put it down and I shit you not, I have never heard a louder creaking sound (laughs) in my entire life. It was like during an intro and it was like, (laughs) I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So I was doing it slowly because they're like a little heavier. And then I just looked at him over laughing and I I was just like, I got to just do the rest really (laughs) fast. So I just slammed it down.
4: What you didn't know is that you actually actually were while you were doing that decapitating a mouse
0: (laughs) oh that's a shame yeah i feel bad yeah Uh, wow
1: that reminds me of the time at the to get more la specific was at the aria fine arts theater when i went to an advanced screening of phantom thread about five minutes into the movie the chair broke (laughs) Movie just started i was enjoying the movie and then suddenly i was sitting on the ground (laughs) oh dear and i had to i had to get up and go to a closer row Uh, anyway okay so We've gotten some general praise of TCM Fest, some general criticisms of uh I I know we're still calling it Hollywood and Highland, but Julie, it's called ovation.
0: I'm not gonna do that. Get it okay. right. Like I'm just I'm <laughs> just in not, the now. I'm just not gonna do that. So, so that's we've gotten
1: our no. our our praise and our uh and our criticisms out of the way. Should we jump into the movies? Sure. Yeah.
0: So we're going in festival order. So this and, is in the order that
1: Julie, thank you so much we'll
2: for putting start. this Oh, you're most welcome. Julie loves a doc.
0: I love a shared doc. Yeah. yeah, So this is, I think we did see some of them out of order, kind of, but like this is, we're going in the order they were screened. Um, So we're starting on Thursday evening.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're kicking off with Kyle. We saw the opening night movie. Like there's several opening night movies, but there's one that's the opening night movie. It's an event. And also, how did you get in? Did like, Like, uh, RSVP to it? Yeah. Oh, okay. The media pass—you like, can like, yes, you send a note and be like, "I'd like to attend." I see. I yeah. see. yeah, and
4: there were
1: um, empty seats, so more people could have sat down. But, um, but yeah, and it was like—I know someone who like had a VIP pass and it wasn't good enough. to Oh know. wow! No, because <laughs> I, I believe it's it's separately ticketed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um,
4: but anyway, so yes, I got—I was lucky enough to go see the opening night movie, um, and it was mostly because a couple years. Well, the last tcm fest that there was um i got to go see the opening night movie which was the producers and mel brooks was there and that was awesome and that was the year that they gave out the inaugural robert osborne award um which uh was given to martin scorsese so it's like you cannot beat sitting in a theater watching martin scorsese talk for half an hour and then listen to mel brooks talk for half an hour it was just like this is great so i was just like uh you know Steven Spielberg is going to be at the 40th anniversary screening of ET, the extraterrestrial. And that is a movie that I know we owned on VHS and I had watched a few times on VHS, but it is not one that I have revisited very often. Um, And so rewatching it, and it was the it's a remastered version, and it was the remaster of the original. And so if anyone remembers that, like the DVD version that had weird special effects and stuff like that, and they took out the um, the guns that the cops had and put walkie talkies, that's all gone. The, the guns are back, baby. Um, <laughs> they God. point shotguns at children. Um, but um, so I, it was interesting. The other interesting thing about the rewatching of it because it it it, it looks different than a lot of um scores or spielberg movies like it's a little grainier it's a little more like i mean it's shot almost entirely or at least a good chunk of it is shot with like kind of fading light kind of like either dawn or dusk kind of looking light which is it gives it an interesting kind of like um texture to it um but i like picked up on stuff that i obviously never picked up on when i was a kid which is like with the exception of d wallace like Anytime there's an adult in the movie, they're shot from like mid chest up. And so you never see their face until the end when you see Peter Coyote's face and all the other scientists and stuff. Um, and like, everything's kind of scary. Like I I remember growing up with people who thought ET was a scary movie. Um, and I was like, what are you talking about? And then watching this, I go, I can kind of see it because everything is sort of like from a kid's point of view. It feels, it feels scarier than it maybe is otherwise, um, but other than that, I it was weird. I remembered like every bit of it, like every scene. I was like, I remember the scene and I haven't seen it since I was a child, basically. So um, that was interesting. And I'm not sure. I know some people and maybe Scott, you were one of those people who does not particularly care for E.T. I
2: mean, I haven't seen this since I was late high school, or early college. Okay. I did not care for E.T. Yeah,
1: I, um, I am also a bit of an E.T. Discover. Having revisited it as an adult, I I think it's. I mean, it's it's very episodic, which is obviously there are plenty of movies that are episodic yeah. that are that are great, but it's episodic in a way that I think feels kind of shambolic. Agreed,
4: and, and yeah. yeah, it's like um well, now's the time they do this. Like it, it felt like a lot of that, and so I enjoyed watching it, but I'm like, I don't, I don't think I loved it as much as like a lot of people. Excuse me, have um, that kind of fond memory for it, and also like, so Ben Mankiewicz talked to um, Spielberg for. 45 minutes almost actually before the movie and they went basically went through his entire early career up to et and like talked about all the other movies and then i was just like you, that kind of got me i was like oh man he had basically with the exception of 1941 he was going strength from strength to strength and all this stuff and it's like i was all excited to rewatch et which i hadn't seen in a while and i was like i know it was a huge 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 hit but like it's it doesn't hold a candle to like raiders or jaws or right. anything like right. yeah. that it's just kind of it's like a cute movie. And like, even, even the ET puppet sometimes looks real bad. <laughs> and like, and I'm sure, and I think that was some of the stuff that they changed with the, the DVD release when they added the CGI effects and stuff like that, which I, yeah. I don't,
1: I don't think is yeah, bad. I, but. I, I think I'd prefer the bad puppet in the bathtub to the, the obvious CGI in a 1982 movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so no, I, no, I didn't mean, like not 1982, not like labyrinth level CGI. Like, no, you know, to whatever what year whatever year they did that like, i feel like it was mid-2000s. 2000s yeah mid 2000s sometime yeah um yeah,
4: that. but yeah it was but like there's definitely the wide shots when it's clearly somebody just in a weird potato costume kind of like <laughs> moving around <laughs> but like when it's the articulated puppet it looks pretty good but anyway the whole point is that like there's i was more interested in like the aesthetic and kind of how different that looked from a, it looks like a much smaller movie than Spielberg. Like going from Raiders to that seems very strange to me. Right. Like not just because it's a different type of story, but like it's a different, I mean, he had a different cinematographer on that one. It's the same guy, Alan Davio, who shot, um, Empire of the Sun and The Color Purple as well. And that's it. He just shot those three for Spielberg. And it's like, boy, what a weird trio of movies to shoot <laughs> for this one
2: filmmaker. I was also just looking him up. He also shot Spielberg's short film Amblin, yeah. from which his uh, production company is named. Oh. Which is very interesting that like they shot Amblin together when they were nobodies. Right. And like 15 years pass. And yeah. And does E.T.? yeah it's 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 a super strange
4: kind of progression of things and like um ben mankowitz who i think we made fun of slightly a little bit last year yeah. for his kind of just general vibes but <laughs> he did end the talk with spielberg going well i wish you'd have made some more movies <laughs> which that was really funny it was a
2: few like, one-liners yeah yeah
4: um but yeah so it was it was it was fun to watch but otherwise uh it didn't. It didn't like fill me with childhood glee the way I was hoping it would. It did make me really appreciate the older brother character, though. That guy was really good. actually, Dee Wallace right. is super good in it.
1: Uh, well, let's move on to Julie Europe. Although it's a movie that I have seen, so I might okay. uh, um- chime in.
0: Yeah, so full disclosure, I watched this at home because the screening time, I just couldn't make it after work. But I really wanted to see it. I've been wanting to see it for a long time. Um, It is The Slender Thread from 1965. It is the directorial debut of Sidney Pollack. Um, It also has an early um, score from Quincy Jones. And it stars Anne Bancroft and Sidney Poitier. So the premise... Don't forget Telly Savalas. That's true, Telly Savalas. Um, I I love Telly Savalas. I love when Telly Savalas is in a movie. He's pretty great. I like saying Telly Savalas. Yeah, (laughs) we all win. But um so the premise is that Bancroft plays a woman who's overdosed on pills she calls a suicide hotline and is and the, the person working hotline is Poitier and he's trying to figure out where she is so he can send emergency services to her. So you hear this premise and you're like, okay, so like, I know how this is going to play out. Like Sydney Poitier is going to be cool, calm and collected. He's going to be great at his job. He's going to like masterfully orchestrate it. So they trace the call and everything's fine. Yeah. Turns out he's kind of shit at his job. <laughs> like it, it's just, a, it, well, it's not a job. It's a volunteer gig. He hasn't been doing it very long. He says up front that he's only doing it to get credit for a psychology class. And he like yells at her, like he actively inflames the situation. Like he starts out by saying he's really nervous. He's like, I'm really nervous. I've never actually had a call like this. He gets really frustrated with her. He loses her temper. And that makes it a very different movie because a lot of times he'll like yell at her and she'll be like, okay, I'll hang up. And he's like, wait, no. And then like, so it's this a really, really amazing interplay between these two characters. Um, It's not totally a ticking clock movie because you have flashbacks to show like how Bancroft got to this moment. Um, and part of me, was like, it does sap the tension a little bit, but on the other hand, it's much better than just hearing Anne Bancroft describe her entire life on the phone. Um, Cause like that could be a different movie, but what ends up happening is like her situation is kind of complicated. And there is like a lot of great scenes of her, like, interacting with our family and feeling all these feelings. So I think it's ultimately a choice that's for the best. Um, so Poitiers is great, of course, but like Bancroft is next level. Like we, I hope we all realize she's incredible. I, I think a lot of people distill her um, career down to the graduate where she's great and maybe um, the miracle worker, but she's like always like, bringing, and, like, just her face. Like, I, I almost thought of, like, Falconetti and Passion of Joan of Arc. Like, some of the shit she does with her face is just unbelievable. Um, they saw, they shot in Seattle. You get to see a lot of Seattle, which is really cool. And you also learn about how to trace a call in 1965, which is the <laughs> most complicated shit you have ever seen. Like, they have to go out to some weird rig and they have to wake up a guy who, like, is this on night duty. It's this whole thing. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I don't know, David, if you... Feel the same?
1: Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'll definitely second what you were saying about Aunt Bancroft. There is a, not that I have any problem with the flashbacks, but her voice acting is so good that almost sure. it might have been able to carry it, you know, because she's playing she's playing someone who is over the course of the movie the barrettes are setting in, and she's like yeah. slurring a little more, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's really great voice acting. But I think what I really liked, um, I mean, I liked a lot of the things about the movie. Uh, what I really responded to is the bits of in, in addition to all of uh the the plot and character stuff the little bits of like color that that the screenplay sydney pollack whatever uh, throws in like there's a part they go to like a go-go club or whatever in one of the flashbacks oh yeah but then well uh, they call it
0: a discotheque which is amazing because she's like we're gonna go to one of those like what's it called and someone's like a discotheque and this is yeah. 1965 so maybe that's like a new word yeah know. uh
1: and then i guess this is my, i won't give out full spoilers minor spoilers there's a part near the end where they know that the cops know that she's in a hotel room they know what hotel it is they don't know what room and the hotel happens to be hosting a like cattle ranchers convention yeah. so you've got these like cops including uh is ed asner it's been a, uh, a while I'm yeah ed asner, ed asner is, is one of the, the cops, cops. Yeah. uh like going through this hotel, knocking down on rooms. And meanwhile, there's like drunk people in the hallway. They're like throwing open doors. And there's like a poker game going on. Yeah. Like, I, I I love that because it's um, it's fun. But also, I think that those kind of things, the lively music and, and the partying is sort of meant to remind you of like what life is and, and, yeah. what, she, and what this suicidal person is actually like giving up or leaving behind yeah. uh, anyway.
0: But yeah, check it out. It's awesome.
1: I shouldn't have talked so much there because now I have to talk for two movies in a row uh, on my own. Uh, well, now you've <laughs> done it. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the first of, uh, yeah, as Kyle mentioned, a lot of pre-code movies. I, th- I think I saw three. Um, the first one that I saw, uh, which is also the first of two uh, William Dieterle films that I saw and the first of two William Powell films that I saw, uh, 1932's 32's Jewel Robbery. Uh, which uh, in which um, Kay Francis plays a uh, somewhat uh, kept woman, I guess, who uh, uh, has finally convinced her very wealthy husband to buy her this enormous uh, uh, diamond ring. And while she's there, William Powell and his men as like a gentleman jewel thief show up and rob the place. And she develops an enormous crush on him and maybe he on her, Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like William Powell as gentleman jewel thief is like, it kind of sells itself and then that's, and, 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 uh, he, he lives up to it. You know, there's the, like. Uh, he's got so many great uh lines but there's also just line line readings you know when the jewelry store owner is like what's going on here and he says something some lines of like well if you don't mind too terribly much i'm robbing you <laughs> <laughs> uh it's very very charming you understand why K k francis would uh would would fall for him the movie was you know i kyle you were talking about like seeing big celebrities at TCM Fest. I didn't think they got some of that too, but going to like TCM Fest year after year, there are also just like their stock, like their, their stable of people introducing movies that I love to see. And and so Jewel Robbery was introduced by Carrie Beecham, who is the like, best. Always my favorite. Um, and she really like, uh, I think, cause like I, said, like I said, this is the first of multiple pre-code movies we want to talk about. And I think she really distilled for me, what i feel like every time there's a, a a pre-code movie you hear someone say like oh this is quintessential pre-code right always but i no. feel like jewel robbery which is a fun movie but she carrie beachman really distilled for me what makes pre-code so fascinating uh, um and it goes back the, this goes back to 20 years ago or so i read a book uh by michael LaSalle called complicated women which is about pre-code female movie stars and carrie Beachum talked about how after once joseph breen took over the Hayes code like the idea of women being seen as enjoying sex and not being punished for that or that not being a negative trait went away for 20 years or more you know and and that's absolutely like Kay francis in in jewel robbery more so than some of the women in uh another pre-code we'll talk about later um is just like uh hard up for sex with someone other than her husband and that's not in any way like uh uh seen as a flaw in, in in her part her her husband's not you know he he provides the goods in terms of the uh the jewels that she that she loves but uh she and her and her friend who uh Helen Vincent might be the actress i can't remember um yeah are, are spend most of their time dishing about either jewelry or uh, other men they might be or would like to be fucking uh and i i i definitely um think that's that's what i when i think of quintessential pre-code which again is something a phrase you will hear applied to almost every pre-code movie you ever see in my experience when i think when i think of quintessential pre-code this is the type of thing that i talk about not not that i'm saying this is like as great a movie as like red-headed woman or something it's a fun movie um but it it has those elements that that uh um i think the only other pre-code that i've seen at tcm fest that really lives up to that is did any of you see george kukord's girls about town when they showed that uh like four years ago i think we have seen it outside of the festival yeah Yeah. that's that's one that also feels like it's the same thing because it's about a bunch of women who that's a movie about a bunch of women who aren't married who they're they make their living by sleeping with rich men who buy them things and pay their rent and stuff like that and again it's not a uh a uh, moralistic uh, movie. Um so yeah, uh, but again, to talk about jewel robbery e in particular to sum up William Powell being super
2: charming, what more do you need?
0: Yeah. Um, I think we've we've seen that, right? Yeah, long A long, ago a long ago time ago.
2: I, didn't, didn't feel comfortable commenting on it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just remember like the same things you said, yeah. like just, it's really fun. William Powell. We we actually, I feel like watch a lot of William Powell movies in quarantine. Like I find him okay. just like.
2: They're all short and pleasant.
0: They're short and pleasant. Yeah. And he's just so charming. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. More on him.
1: I saw one other William Powell, so more on him later. Um, and then my uh, uh, closed out the night uh, Thursday with Preston Sturgis Hail the Conquering Hero. Um I liked it. I would say it's I didn't see anything this year that I didn't like. But I had never seen Hail the Conquering Hero and I had seen and loved Miracle of Morgan's Creek, the other nineteen forty four Preston Surges movie starring Eddie, Eddie Bracken. And I would say based on that comparison, Hail the Hail, the Conquering Hero doesn't doesn't live up to Miracle of Morgan's Creek. I don't know. Has, have you guys seen either? No, I'm I'm not a big Preston Surges guy though, so uh, I, I, I mean, Helikon King Hero also has it has some of the same, at least one element of the same DNA of Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which is the kind of sympathy. It's a World War II movie that takes place during World War II and has sympathy for the like the 4F, like the the people who couldn't, the the men who couldn't join up and are and are stuck on the the home front, if you will. And so here, Eddie Bracken plays a guy who was actually actually got as far as boot camp before he was deemed 4F um, and uh, um, has spent so much of his life wanting to be a Marine that he can't bring it. He can't bring himself to tell his family in his small town that he is no longer a Marine. So he's been like sending letters to someone in Europe who then sends them back to his his mom or whatever. But he meets some other uh, Marines who are like, oh, that sucks for you. You know what? we're going to bring you back to your hometown and tell a bunch of stories about you being a hero in the war. And it very quickly gets way out of hand uh, to where like people are trying to get him to run for mayor and shit like that. Um, But uh, yeah, uh, it's, it just, it it doesn't have, it's not as close to being miracle, miracle of Morgan's Creek, I guess, because it has to do with sex and pregnancy feels a little bit more, daring or a little bit more close to being anarchic or whatever and uh, uh, this movie is way more it's clearly like um, in, I mean Miracle of Morgan's Creek is also like propagandistic but in a way that is self-aware and also undercuts it at the same time whereas Hell the Conquering Hero is pretty much like a very pro war effort pro American military movie there are so many references to killing japanese people but of course they are not called japanese people they are no. called things that i won't say on this podcast so that was kind of like uh, uncomfortable um i'd say uh yeah i wish i had thought to call it the movie beforehand uh the the secret hero of the movie for me is the guy who plays the current mayor's son who is got engaged to eddie Bracken's gal while while he was while he was away um and uh yeah i'm not gonna not gonna find uh is it bill
4: edwards who plays forest noble
1: yeah it might be bill edwards actually um yeah he's uh he's so good at playing this this guy who's Who's gotten through his life by being very handsome and very wealthy, and has no discernible personality traits other than that? And I got more laughs out of his just very like pouty, like sad, like like uh, line, line readings than I did from any of the like madcap comedy that's happening in the movie. I still mostly liked it, but uh, grading on a curve, I would say this is my least favorite movie of the festival. Mm. Uh, all right, I didn't look at what we're...
2: Yeah, uh, I'm up next. It's actually interesting that you mentioned getting more enjoyment out of like a particular actor choice than what seems to be a lot of clever choices within the screenplay, because I had the same experience with Dinner at Eight, which I caught bright and early um, on Friday morning. Uh, I'd wanted to see this movie for a while. It's kind of a big cast pre-code movie directed by George Cukour, um, who's a, you know, notable in and of himself. Uh, it has an interesting screenwriting tag team of... Herman J. Makowitz, of course, of Citizen Kane fame and also of many clever screenplay fame. Um, so, you know, pretty easy to attribute all the lines to him. So, it's him and Francis Marion who wrote like The Wind and the Scarlet Letter and all these other like silent melodramas. Um, and it's definitely a mishmash of those. There's a lot of super clever lines and then there's a lot of like sudden melodrama. And the vibe shift, um, you know, as we're all experiencing, there's a vibe shift going on. Um, was, I, I think, mostly worked pretty well. I, I tend to like a very high heightened mix of tones and some sudden uh, aggressive shifts. I just don't think that comedy, for the most part, plays. Um, like the lines are pretty cleverly written, but I think they're a little underscored in the acting for the most part, that the actors are like, check out this clever line I've got. Won't this be fun? Um, and the cast is certainly notable. So, um, no slag on them much. It's, I, I attempted mostly to mostly attribute this to Kakor um marie dressler john barrymore wallace Beery, gene harlow lionel barrymore you always get the two barrymores together uh lee tracy edmund lowe and billy burke uh it was fun watching the opening credits of this movie because like people came out big with the applause for marie dressler big for john barrymore and then like a little bit for wallace Beery, and like it kind of went in waves and there was like one edmund lowe fan in the audience and then they came back for billy burke and they're like oh yeah she's in it too. great um Gotta pace yourself yeah of course <laughs> um but yeah, the so it's kind of all these disparate um, well-to-do people getting ready, you know, to go to a dinner party. Um, the dinner party itself is so late in the film that I almost thought it was going to be like a Boone premise myself they never actually get to it, which I was like kind of vibing on for a while and like this could work. But of course, you know, they have to have dinner eventually. Um,
4: what, what time did they have dinner?
2: Uh, like quarter two. It was really oh, uh, sold to me. Yeah, I know. I was a little disappointed. Um. But uh, for the most of the movie, it's like them and their separate worlds living their separate lives. You know, obviously, MGM was only going to pay for all of them together to only do these very limited scenes at the very end of the movie. Um, for the most part, they're kind of on their own. And the only storyline that really worked for me was uh, Gina Harlow, who is married to Wallace Beery. She was like clearly a former showgirl that he just married because he thought she was a grand old time. And now they're both sick of each other and just yelling at each other all the time and getting Wallace Beery and Gina Harlow yelling at each other is a great time. Uh, <laughs> she kind of got the biggest laugh for me. And I was the only one laughing at this line, which kind of shows how out of sync I was with the audience. Um, so Wallace Beery is this like very accomplished businessman uh, getting called off to Washington to be, potentially be a diplomat. He's going to meet with the president. And she's completely unimpressed with all of this. She doesn't care. She's like, you're going to drag me to Washington. Eventually he's like, yes, of course you're my wife. And she's like, screw you. I love New York. I love living it up because she's did here Harlow. Why wouldn't she? Um so while that's going on, um, she's having an affair with her doctor, and you know, she keeps like faking illnesses to bring the doctor over. And the doctor comes over and he's like, Well, what's what's going on today? She's like, I'm not feeling well. And he's like, Where's your husband, Wall Street? I have no idea what Wall Spear's name is in the movie. I don't know what anyone's name is, who cares? <laughs> um, and she, she just goes, the president called him to fix things or something like that, (laughs) which was so deeply funny to me and zero other people in the movie were laughing. Um, but I was having a grand old time, at least for that moment Uh, for the most part, it's a two hour long pre good movie, which is kind of like testing the limits of that kind of thing. Um, and so it just felt a little drawn out and kind of snappy pace, like a jewel robbery or something like that does. Um, and it was kind of like a bloated star vehicle and I could kind of feel that, I guess. That's that. That's that.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be quiet for a while here because I, Oh yeah. What's next? I went um, to work on Friday, so I didn't come back. Until the, <laughs> oh, the, lame. The nighttime.
0: Um, yeah. yeah. Next is a, a, a collab with Kyle, with Kyle and I, we both saw the gunfighter.
1: Yeah,
4: that's definitely.
0: true. Um, my first note here is what a picture. Um, yeah,
4: totally. That,
0: that is my capsule review, but basically it's sort of, I mean, High Noon is the easy comparison only insofar as it is a Western and a contained timeframe where a bunch of characters converge in a small town. Um, But the actual plot is that the titular role, it's played by Gregory Peck. He arrives in town to settle some business and kind of dredges up a bunch of, you know, there's friends, there's lovers, there's enemies. It kind of seems like everyone in this town has a connection to him, good or bad. Um, It's um about the cycle of violence um it's about how violence begets violence um turns out the thing about being a fast gun in the old west is that it makes you famous which then makes people want to kill you so they can say they killed the fastest gun in the old west so people just come up to you and start shit and he doesn't want this shit like he doesn't want to always be doing this but then he ends up having to kill people in self-defense so it just like puts a target on your back and is like exploring violence in that way until it culminates in an incredible ending. the role was actually written for John Wayne, who was interested in it, but he uh, lowballed the screenwriter. So they took over to Fox and um, Alan K. Rhodey did the intro and he was like, I think it's actually for the best because Gregory Peck, I think, takes this role in some directions that John Wayne might not have. Um, he's a lot of like sensitivity and vulnerability. Also, there are plenty of movies where John Wayne is a grizzled cowboy, if that's what you want. There are not a lot of movies where Gregory Peck is a grizzled cowboy. So it's just yeah. like something different. Um has a great supporting cast um and yeah it's also about fame like everyone in this town knows who he is by name but they don't know what he looks like which is like played for comedic effect in one scene but people are literally just like like they let the school out like all the kids in the school get to have the day off to go stare at this guy and it's just like this is like the 1850s or something and it's just like a weird meditation on how that legend can grow even then but he doesn't want it. His life is not better for it. And like mm. every town he shows up, they try to get rid of him because he's going to cause problems. But I just thought it was like, it's really more of a chamber drama. I thought it was just like really incredible. And
4: yeah, I completely agree. I, this, I, this was the first proper movie. I won't, I, I'm not saying that ET isn't a proper movie, but this was the first, when I think of TCM Fest, I think of old black and white movies. Um, but this, so this was like the first proper one that I was really excited to see. And with the exception of one other one, et and that one other one which is close to the end of the fest everything else i saw was a was a new one to me um and so i i kind of wanted to kind of you know this one was a western a bunch of, i b- saw a bunch of different um like genres and that that was something i was specifically trying to do um to add add variety where the fest chose not to have it so anyway um I'm a big, I love Gregory Peck in a lot of the Westerns that I've seen him in. Um, He's really good in this movie, the bravados from uh, 60 something um, where he is a man seeking revenge. Basically he's doing it the other way. He's the one who's hunting the, the outlaws or whatever. Um, And in this one, he's really like, I love that he plays it so restrained for the most part, because just like Julie said, he doesn't want to kill anybody. Like early in the movie, there's a, there's a moment when he's just, just wants a drink and some young kid starts something he has to you know uh he has to defend himself he leaves town and then that's not the end of it there's you know like basically he, somebody wants revenge on him for that and all this stuff and so basically he all he does is kind of just sit in a corner of this of this saloon um and the saloon owner does know him personally and that's Carl Malden and one of in a a delightful role, I would say Carl Malden is having a great time in this, but everybody just like swarms this, this building and he just kind of sits there and it's, it is one of those things where like, I knew it was like, I figured what was going to happen. Not, not fully, but just like, but I was still tense the entire time, like get out of town. Like I just kept like thinking like this man needs to leave town. Nothing good will happen if he sticks around, but it's like, he has a thing. He w- he won't leave town until he does it and all this stuff. Um, I, yeah, I thought it was outstanding. This is like the, this one got released on criterion a year or two ago. And, it was it was always on my like soft list of like I this is one I would check out because yeah same. the recent the recent westerns that they've put out have been really good. Like mm-hmm. The Furies, the Anthony Mann movie I'd never even heard of is is a fascinating movie. Um and you know, like uh some of the Delmer Delmer Daves movies that they put out. But anyway, so this is this was a, a Henry King joint. Um and yeah, Alan K. Rhodey talked a lot about William Bowers, the uh the writer. Yeah
0: the movie Um, was oscar nominated for the screenplay too
4: and it's yeah it's super good and it's not it's not about it's not about shooting if that makes sense like it's about violence without being very violent like it's it's all about the threat of violence it's all about um trying to put violence behind you and then some people like that's all they care about and like there's you know all the little boys just are like constantly throughout the movie are talking about who's a bet who's who's a quicker draw is it Wyatt Earp or Jimmy Ringo and Jimmy Ringo is um Greg Peck's character so it's just like just constantly like arguing over who's the fastest gun it's like you're who cares you know what I mean like ultimately who cares when someone's dead so um and it ends in like a a real gut punch oh the ending
0: oh my god it's so good it's an alt it's like even if you sort of know where it's going generally just like the way they stick the landing, it's like a, a gymnast 10. It's like yeah. so good, yeah,
4: it's so good. And I think, I think the uh, the unsung hero of the movie is the Marshall, played by Millard yep. Mitchell. He's uh-huh. so good, like, yeah. I've seen him in other stuff. He's he's a film noir staple, You've yeah. Seen him he was also before. maybe
0: most famous for being the studio head and singing in the rain, that's right, yes. Which, um, but he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's so good because they used to be it's revealed that he and Jimmy Ringo used to be kind of like associates in their like rowdier days, but then he went straight and now he's. He's just like trying to live this honest life and he yeah he's great
4: and he doesn't carry a gun and everyone thinks he's a softy because he doesn't carry a gun it's like
0: yeah
4: yeah it's 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 a tremendously good movie i was really excited to finally see it and now i'm like really stoked to eventually buy that (laughs) blu-ray because i want to watch it again
0: yeah Um, four thumbs up
4: four thumbs up (laughs) uh the next one on the list is me again and uh i'm stick i'm sticking to old black and white movies uh this was an interesting one it was sort of just like it just kind of fit in my schedule I, it wasn't like one that i was all that excited to see but i was kind of i was happy that i saw it it is it, it was billed as spy smasher strikes back and actually what this is is not a, a real movie there i said it it's not a real movie <laughs> um it's uh It's an old Republic serial, which are the 12, I think it was 12 parts and Ben Burtt, who is a TCM fest staple, um, and also a Oscar winning, um, sound designer and, uh, editor as well. He decided to take it upon himself to, because there weren't superhero movies back in those days, but there were old serials. And so he basically edited as much as one can these, this 12 part serial into a feature film. Um, (laughs) And uh, the, the hero in it is named spy smasher. And I'm going to give you two guesses as to what he does. (laughs) He, he smashes spies everyone. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So it's like, it's a super world war two type movie where like the bad guy's called the mask. And he's just a, um, uh, a nazi like submarine commander who like puts on <laughs> basically just a, a a headband that has like a, a piece of cloth over it with eye holes and that's how he's the mask like it's ridiculous um but i guess that was in the comic strip um uh and so basically what ben bird tried to do was like he made like a, a pre-credit scene where spy smasher goes and like saves a french resistance fighter who is like um who works for the French, like the Vichy government, but like, he's been helping them out and he's about to get, um, hanged. And so like, he shows up and saves the guy. And that, that guy eventually like saves him in a little, a couple scenes later, but then the, the, the action moves entirely to the United States and Spy Smasher runs into his twin brother <laughs> played by the same actor. So it's just constant, like split screening and stuff like that. And they have to try to find all of these different like bomb components because the the mask wants to blow up like a Harbor or something like that. It's, it's very convoluted. And, and Ben Burt said in his introduction, he was like um, the thing about these is that they were heavy on action and like spectacle and almost no character development. So it's like, it's just wall to wall action basically. Um, and it's, it's very hokey. I think at a lot of points, like the guy who plays, um, Spy Smasher himself, like he's just kind of like a lantern-jud like hero guy, and he he pronounces words weird in a way that only like actors of the era did. This is 1942, and so he's like, "We must go and find the clue," which, <laughs> and he says "clue" like that a bunch of times, and it's just like that's so weird. um The girl in it uh, is basically not a character like she is essentially she is the daughter or niece i forget which of the admiral okay so he's like boss guy who gives him the orders and like he uh you know call have the admiral bring in the. but they're all on land like what is he the admiral of (laughs) where does he admiral from whence does he admiral is what i want to know and so like she is his like personal assistant as well as his again either daughter or niece and her boyfriend is the twin brother they share i think one or two scenes together in the entire thing there is clearly no romance between them um and it's just a lot of people going oh, spy smasher like because that's his name and uh he wears um uh like pilot a pilot like i don't know which one of those like leather not helmets but you know those old timey like sure, yeah. f- flight h- hats it's called flight hats yeah. and uh, and <laughs> goggles but he had never once is in a plane Oh, no, he is in a plane, but he is not piloting it. His twin brother, who does not wear those things, is the pilot of the plane. Um, and, but the action in it is, like, surprisingly good. They're, they had, like, model effects. They had, you know, explosions and stuff like that. And, and Bert talked a lot about, like, the team behind that and how, like, um, uh, they were, like, way ahead of their time in that way and the actually like the fist fights are genuinely impressive especially for the time because it is just guys throwing each other at each other and like there's a lot of fights like on staircases and like the guy who plays spy smasher uh well the stunt man who plays spy smasher like jumps off of stuff a lot and like it's it was really impressive to watch but after like 108 minutes or however long it was you do kind of just like you're just kind of numb because it's all just action nonstop. stop there's very and there's and stupid dialogue so it was it was an interesting it was a fun thing to watch you know in the morning on a friday but it was it was not like it wasn't i wouldn't say it's like good but it was it was fun
2: yeah those things are meant to be watched in 10 minute chunks before something else for yes reason. exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly so
4: it was uh i had a good time but yeah it was it was uh it numbed me to there the rest were, of it for a while
1: quite a while ago Flickr alley put out a blu-ray of like a sherlock holmes from 19 like 16 like the silent sherlock holmes that was like produced as like 12 10 minute shorts and it is stultifying to watch <laughs> yeah. two hour two hour sitting i've done that a few times i watched um oh god was it Pathé?
4: maybe So the, one of the early french um companies put out uh, a series of um Fantomas, um sh- like well, yeah. yeah, silent shorts and I watched two of those and was just like, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and also Republic also did captain Marvel, which I actually own, but I've never watched. But, um, uh, my friend Mike's told me that, uh, spy smash spy smasher had way, more, way better like fights than the captain Marvel one did. And I was like, well, that does not make me want to watch captain <laughs> Marvel. <laughs> so, uh,
2: yeah, next up is me. Um, big big shift here from from action to feelings uh i, I watched uh <laughs> watched the group um directed oddly by sydney lamette um not not one to frequent a women's picture i say, i would say overall um but apparently he was mostly hired because he was you know gaining some prestige at the time i think the pawnbroker is which come out and um he was known to be able to bring relatively expensive movies in on time and on budget. And this is certainly like a, an unwieldy movie. It's a large cast, a lot of women uh, having feelings. Uh, you got your Candace Bergen, Jonah Hackett, Elizabeth Hartman, Shirley Knight, Jessica Walter. Hello. Uh, plus a couple of men, James Ro- Broderick, and a an, uh, young Hal Holbrook. Uh, I'm usually very bad at recognizing like young people or people I really mostly know as older actors, but when they were young, but both Jessica Walter and Hal Holbrook, I was like, Oh yeah. I know you, <laughs> like right away. There's little expressions, and Hal Hobert's Hel- voice is like the same, which is weird. Um, but uh, it was written by Sidney Buckman, who wrote like a ton of like awesome late '30s like screw-well comedies, like The King Steps Out, An Adventure in Manhattan, Theater Goes Wild, Here at Holiday, Mister Smith Goes to Washington, Talk of the Town, um, and then the fifties came and he didn't do anything for 10 years. And if you know your Hollywood history and guessing why a Jewish guy didn't do something for 10 years in Hollywood, you can probably figure out why. Um, And then he kind of came back in the sixties, wrote this and a handful of other things that uh, gained some notice. Um, This was adapted by a book by Mary McCarthy. One of those that's kind of billed as a novel, but was, you know, a very thinly disguised memoir of her own life and uh, her own experiences growing up set in the thirties And it's about this group of women who um, have just graduated college and kind of starting off in their lives. And, man, I love a bitchy tell-all, get-it-all-out-there, bunch of high-drama women's picture. Um, It's very messy. There's a lot of massive tonal shifts going on. A lot of acting choices all up and down the line. But um, I thought it was super engaging. And more than just being, like, an academic look, look at, like, women's lives at the time and the shifting cultural standards, I thought it was really emotionally engaged in like how people navigate shifting cultural standards. And it's very much a movie that like, even though it's set in the thirties, like it's commenting on the sixties big time in terms of like shifting social mores of, um, sex before marriage. Uh, I mean, this is like, uh, uh, Julie and I often joke about, um, oh, shoot, who's the uh, guy that Bill Hader plays on Weekend Update with? Uh, the Stefan? Stefan. Yeah, this is like a Stefan movie. This movie has everything. It's got, uh, it's got abortion. It's got uh, breastfeeding. It's got suicide. It's got uh, sex before marriage. It's movies, you know, when you have a cast of eight notable women, uh, m- plenty of storylines for everybody. Um, and it really gets into um, the tricky state of, like, being a woman at a time that's like, you know, feels like it's advancing in some ways. And this was true of the thirties as much as the sixties of like, there's massive social and political change going on in the world and women who felt like they were a part of it, but also being shuffled into more familiar domestic roles or those that are pursuing professional roles being felt like they're being diminished and put into kind of like a comforting feminine role within their industries and how all of these things um, can affect the social dynamic of a group of women who at one point were very close, but who are going off in different life trajectories and experiencing things apart that previously they probably experienced together and how that all kind of feeds into um, their attempt to develop as real adults. Um, it's also got a great performance. I think, I forgot to note it down, but I think it was by Sydney Lumet's dad who plays one of the women's dads who's like, had a mental breakdown recently, divorced the woman's mom and just like showed up at her, her the daughter's doorstep to just like live with her for a while. And his manicness uh expresses itself through him just cooking all the time. So like every time she walked in the door, he's either cooking or renovating the apartment, which leads to some uh great little comedic bits. So it's a very kind of varied film in addition to like there's definitely the high drama, there's definitely the melodrama. Um, but it's also quite funny in a lot of ways and pretty, pretty hip film. I really liked it. Um, and the print looked amazing. This was probably an IB tech print. It really had the colors baked in there. And this is the pleasure of movies that don't screen very often is like, it's still in great shape all these years later. So yeah, highly recommend it.
0: Yeah. Um, so then moving on once again, very big shift. Um, yeah, we, Scott and I saw 1984 all of me. Um, this was part of kind of a Lily Tomlin thing they were doing. Like she like put her hands in the cement to the Chinese theater. Um, she was supposed to do a Q and A at the screening and then was suddenly not available. I hope she's okay, Lily. If you're listening, well, they said at the thing
2: that she was just going off to set, and I wouldn't be surprised if like Lily Tomlin was just like screw this. I'm going to go continue to work.
0: Yeah. So, so they sent um, June Diane Raphael in her place, who is her co-star on Grace and Frankie. So she did a QA and a about Lily Tomlin basically, um, and talked about how influential she was and how unafraid, like the thing I really connected to in the Q&A was like how unafraid Lily Tomlin is of looking ridiculous, which is, I think for a lot of women in entertainment, it's very challenging because you have to be sexy and you have to be appealing, but like Lily Tomlin like just goes for it. She does not care. Um, it's an interesting choice of film to commemorate Lily Tomlin because she's not on screen that much. Yeah, I thought um, that such, yeah. But I was looking at it and she doesn't have that many like traditional leading roles throughout her career in film specifically. Um, but it got her a Golden Globe nom. So like people were listening. So the, the premise, it's, it's sort of a body swap movie, but it's a botched body swap. So it's really more of a body share, I would say. Um, Lily Tomlin dies pretty early in the movie and She wants to put her soul into a willing young woman. It goes wrong. And she puts her soul into Steve Martin's body. Steve Martin playing an uptight lawyer, but they're both in there. It is like joint custody. So there's a lot of physical comedy resulting from that. It's a very like physical. They each control one
2: half of the body. They control
0: one half of the body. Direct down
2: the middle. So like direct down the middle. Right at the beginning, it's like they can't even walk. And Steve Martin's physical comedy, of course, is like top notch at this period.
0: Yeah. So, and then complications ensue, obviously. But I actually, um, I sort of preferred what was happening before the body swap happened, just because like the humor was so bizarre before that point. Like Lily Tomlin plays a woman who's like been dying of a rare disease from the moment she was born basically. And she like has this wheelchair that she's like mowing over Steve Martin's (laughs) feet in it and just like swooning and talking about how sick she is and just absolutely going for it. And then Steve Martin is just delivering his great, like bizarre non sequitur Steve Martin lines. I would say my criticism is that once the body share starts happening, it's one joke. Yeah. Like it's funny. And there's the physical comedy is great, but it is one. I mean, that's
2: joke. usually true of most like high concept comedies, right? It's like the mm-hmm. first fifteen minutes are so varied and weird, and they pack in all the other jokes, and then they just hone in on the, on the one thing. I mean, it has a lot of great bits. Like it has a yeah. whole courtroom scene where Steve Martin has fallen asleep, but Lily thomas is still controlling the body, so she's trying to like impersonate what a man would be doing in a courtroom because Steve Martin plays a lawyer. Yeah. Um, in an amusing opening credit sequence, we learned probably a very successful one as he just pulls the neck brace off of a guy and just twists his head around. And it's like, look at this. And this is all like a sitcom, like pre-credits thing of like, joke the music playing and the credits are coming up and there's Steve Martin just like twisting this guy's head around in a courtroom.
0: Yeah, I... I think I had like body soft stuff on the brain because for last year's TCM Fest, I watched in, We watched inner space for the first time, which is sort of similar in that it's like a, another, I would say joint custody yeah. of a single body situation. Um, so I think I had that in mind and I think that is going for something different, but I think they go beyond just the one joke. Cause they have a lot of set pieces. They have a lot of stakes. Yeah. They um, find
2: so many things to do with that. One so joke. many things
0: to do. <laughs> um, so you know, it's not quite there, but there are there are much worse ways to spend your time than watching Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin go for broke. Yeah. You know, um, and yeah, there, there is um, there's an Indian character that's pretty dicey. Um,
2: yeah. We often comment on the bad race soul depictions in like 30s movies, but uh, a reminder that extended well past then. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I you know, I, I had some reservations, but on the whole good time
2: the other amusing note is that at the beginning of the movie steve martin's like having an existential crisis he doesn't know if he wants to be a lawyer anymore because he's like has a music career on the side um and he complains about he's like i'm 38 and of course steve martin looks like he's like 50 already and i'm like there's no way he's 38 but i looked up and he was exactly 38 when the movie.
4: <laughs> that's funny he he's a, i mean he's been a million years old forever yes yeah,
2: completely yeah
4: um next up is me and I saw a movie that is very out of character for me. Um it's it was a musical from the fifties, which is not something I tend to want to ever watch. But I was that was again where I was I was playing with some uh trying trying to branch out, do a little bit of when, stuff. when
1: in Rome. When in Rome, yes. Oh, sorry. When at ovation at Hollywood and Highland. Yeah. Because you
4: see. Stop trying
0: to make ovation happen.
1: Hollywood and Highland
4: is the intersection. And there's three other corners that ovation is not at. Right. That's what they're trying to make you believe. Um, Hollywood and Highland is a cesspit, everybody. And they're really trying to make it seem like it isn't. Anyway, I watched the pajama game from 1957 starring Doris Day. um, And uh, uh, John Raitt, the father of Bonnie Raitt. And, um, a bunch of other people that I kind of recognized like Eddie Foy Jr. And so basically this was a stage musical that they brought to the screen. Um, not everybody who was in the stage musical was, uh, translated. I think, um, I, uh, Eddie Muller gave the, uh, intro speech to it, which you might think Eddie Muller's the noir guy. Why would he, but he is a huge Doris Day fan. And he was basically just like, short of bonnie Raitt coming to, to, to want to give the intro like he was like i'm doing this so um it, it's an interesting movie it is a for those who haven't seen it it is a it is a stanley donnan musical like it's you know what it is there's a uh, the dance sequences were done by bob Fosse, so it's a lot of people touching their heads and sticking their arms in the air and um
0: I the... love your very literal description <laughs> of Fosse dancing.
4: Well, that's what it is. Like, there's just a I lot know, of people I, doing it. Like, not it's wrong. Like, What is it? Um, it's not literal dancing, I suppose. It's just sort of like gyrating. Um, and,
0: you sound a hundred years old.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what is this thing? <laughs> you weren't waltzing at all. Um, uh, it's 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 about pe- workers in a pajama factory, and uh, the workers wanting to go on strike for uh seven and a half more cents per hour was basically the thing and our hero i guess if you can call him that our beefy man john rate is <laughs> he, he comes in he's got dad bod galore by the oh, way yeah. like he's <laughs> and uh he comes in and he he kind of talks his way into being the the what is he he's, he's not called the foreman but it's something like that he's basically like in charge of the factory while the, the the boss is this blustery old like never give an inch kind of guy and then um is the um head of the complaints department or something like that um and they butt heads but then immediately fall in love that's just the way musicals work and then uh they're on opposite sides all this stuff so what the interesting thing about this is that a, bunch, a few of the songs, I won't say a bunch, a few of the songs in it are ones you, you've you known, I have known for my entire life. There was like that steam heat, which I think I maybe even sang in choir one time. There is, uh, oh shoot, there was one other one that I was like, oh yeah, oh, the um, uh, Hernando's Hideaway, I had heard before. That's a, a pretty famous song. And then there was one that I had sung to myself for years and years and years, didn't know what it was or where it was from. And it's it's the it's the last song, basically, the last song in the in the movie, which is like, I figured it out. I figured it out with the pencil and a pad, I figured it out. And it's basically doing the math to figure out how much seven and a half cents is actually worth over a long period of time.
1: Um and I'm just imagining the various situations in your daily life that you would think of and sing the song to yourself
4: literally anytime <laughs> someone figures something out, it's <laughs> in Anytime something is figured out or whether I am involved or not, I start singing it, but I didn't know what the hell this was from. And I literally just go, Oh, Hey, that's what this is (laughs) like. That's that was my whole revelation. Um, But the interesting thing besides those ones is that I thought most of the songs were just not anything. They were bad songs that weren't good. (laughs) And I don't, I didn't care for them. I didn't think they were all that catchy. They were just like generic mid-century musical songs and like, whatever. Um, I, not to say that I was unimpressed by anything, the dancing I thought was very good. The singing was very good. Doris day. I don't know if you know this very good singer. Um, but I was just, I was just kind of like, whatever about it. It's, it's fairly funny. Um, I was, it was, I said this to Mike afterwards. I said, this is one of the most entertained I've ever been about something I didn't think was very good. (laughs) So, or that didn't work for me. I won't say I won't, I won't ascribe quality to it because I'm not the target audience, but I had a good time watching it. Um, It is weird. It is a weird, like the premise is weird. Like a lot of the performances are weird.
2: A whole section where they go to like the Bohemian cafe.
4: Yeah yeah it's it's and they have to like light a match to go through the hallway it's really bizarre and then um there's this running gag throughout where eddie foy's character is like dating but also not dating like the the boss's secretary and she's kind of loose i think that's the joke is that everybody kind of she she gives every guy a a chance that's not a phrase anyone's ever used. Um, (laughs) And
1: he will meet them for a polite hello. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Speaking
1: (laughs) of sounding a hundred years old. Yeah.
4: Um, But he's also a knife thrower, which you find out at the, at the company fair. And so at the end, he's just chasing because he thinks John Raitt's character uh, is horning in on his gal. And so he's chasing them throughout the factory, throwing knives at them. And it's just like, it's the weird, it's just the weirdest movie. So like I was, I was, I enjoyed it a lot more on those levels of just like, and this was 1957. Like this was a fairly racy movie for 1957. Um, But yeah, anyway, the pajama game, everyone.
2: Yeah. I just want to butt in and say, I think the pajama game is a full on masterpiece. And um, it has its kind of democratic ethos of like this kind of like mini revolution of trying to get their just wages. I think it's just throughout the movie there's a great dance number between two older and heavyset people which is not something you usually see oh that, i'm sure totally it has yeah. like a very democratic approach to like celebrating everything that everyone's bringing and like the whole scene of the picnic with like the once a year day song is like they're all coming together and making it happen and i find it incredibly moving
0: yeah oh, i well, i'm right. maybe in between these two poles because we rewatched watched this during quarantine yeah. i think um I think it's structurally very strange. You kind of just like lose the leads for a while, and it does like drift and have these things, but it is very undeniably entertaining. Sure. Um I just want to call out carol haney who's in a supporting role they they took her over from the broadway production she is fantastic and she actually died really young which is really sad yeah, but yeah. i know that like gene kelly really championed her and she is like physically just like one of a, a one-of-a-kind performer she is so physical she's doing all the fossey dancing she has these big saucer eyes she's singing in this weird she's like so funny so talented she
4: gets to play like falling down drunk at yeah. Then, yeah at one point yeah. in the thing which is very funny yeah I, I everybody in it like is good i just it's literally like just i didn't like the music honestly is what it was for the most part but then again like three or four songs that i know have known i want to defend life.
0: steam heat though because i sing it all i put every two-syllable phrase to the tune of steam heat to the point where <laughs> scott now just knows that if i go i got he's he like rolls his eyes preemptively but well because
2: i know whatever phrase we just said is yeah but
0: but it, i have to see it through yeah, and, and
2: not high hopes <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, we got, we got steam heat. We got no high hopes around no. here. Oh boy. Yeah. High apple pie in the sky hopes. Uh, Nothing? This, is, this is the mm. rare good transition because I also saw a Stanley Donovan movie around this time. Um, rewatched a very, very dear favorite of mine. He's uh, 1955. Also awesome masterpiece Stanley Donovan, one of the best filmmakers ever. It's always fair weather um this is a sort of semi-sequel to on the town which was made six years earlier and even though it was made after the war and is really kind of set after the war it kind of has like the wartime ethos of like we're all in this together we're winning the war abroad Um, But it's kind of like these guys coming home getting horny and trying to get laid, which is a great premise for a 1949 movie. Not one you see often enough. Um, But then it's always fair weather is like the other side of that. It's recognizing that we, everyone's come back from war. um, Things haven't always worked out. Like maybe you expected on V-Day things are a little more uncertain and everyone's kind of drifted apart. So the movie kind of starts right at 1945 wars ended and these guys Gene Kelly and uh, two other schmucks, um, Dan Daly and Michael Kidd um, go to this cafe, the, this bar and are like, we won the war. We're the best of buds. The bartender was like, you guys won't care about each other tomorrow. And they're like, I'll bet 10 years from now, we'll come back and we'll still be the best of friends. And the 10 years passed and they've drifted apart and they still remember. But so they still come back together and kind of had this uneasy reunion um where they have difficulty kind of reconnecting after all this time they find they're at very different stages their lives they want different things than they wanted 10 years ago and moreover just haven't achieved what they thought they would have 10 years ago um i first saw this movie during a big run of like classic films that julie and i first watched um like the first year we were out of college so like if ever you're primed for a great set of movies about life, not turning out exactly like you would hope coming out of college is a a similar kind of experience. You know, I didn't go to war or anything, but I get the emotional vibe of like, you know, you drift apart from some friends that you thought were your lifelong pals. And, you know, you're sitting in a studio apartment in our case and like just trying to make it work. And, um, so the movie taps into something, even though it's very specific in its cultural setting and sometimes in its cultural satire of like television and stuff. Um, it's very much a mid-50s movie. I, I think this emotional stuff it's exploring is pretty universal and long lasting. That's kind of why it's kind of held up um, over the years and become something that people have really championed. Um, I think even at this point, maybe more so than On the Town, even though On the Town is the cl- more classic movie. I feel like I see people talk about it's always for more. Um, and it's just got... Tremendous dance numbers. Gene Kelly dances on roller skates, which is staggering to watch. Um, there's a opening in the opening scene. They dra- dance on trash can lids, which um, Patricia Kelly did the introduction alongside Mario Cantone, and um, she talked about how Gene Kelly was like that was way harder than uh, roller skate dancing. We like almost broke our ankles every single move we were doing. It's <laughs> like I wouldn't have expected that necessarily. Um, and so this mix of like this very buoyant musical with these very melancholy themes is just really interesting and really unique and really touching. and kind of points to some more stuff that Stanley Donovan would keep doing throughout his career. You know, at this point he was still, he did a few comedies, but he's still very much the big happy musical guy. And this was sort of him starting to shift his interest and Gene Kelly's too. I mean, the fact that two years later, Gene Kelly made Brigadoon, which is dealing with very much the same emotional tenor. It's not directly related to the war at all, but it's very much about, um, having experiences abroad and coming back and people not understanding what the, that experience is like. Um, so it, it's kind of part of a larger cultural shift that was happening in American film. And which, like I said, I, I think the emotional tenor of that whole run really carries forward. And it was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen. I've seen a bunch at home, but um, it was really beautiful to watch. And uh, even in the four, the, the smaller of the TC. Mm. But that means um, that, that, that it was, screen. it was on film. Right? Yes. That was the big draw for me is to see it on 35. i yeah. um, have really
1: been calling that out um yeah but, uh, uh, jewel robbery um i i saw on film of the other movies i've talked about so far
2: yeah the only hold up there is that it was originally shot in cinemascope which is 255 and this was a later print so it's 235 so oh, there's really? um there's a part where they do like a split screen dance number and like some of the you could see some of the edges were kind of honed in on the other guys um but yeah. it still you know plays yeah. fine uh
1: um I oh, won't rehash the conversation we had about this movie last year. I also like it uh, not as much as you, but uh, I also like it a lot. But uh, if I, I guess last year being the at, an at home version means this is different. But it's is it weird for TCM to program the same movie two festivals in a row? Yeah,
2: I think the fact of it being like they're very different festivals, and right, right. They, wh- one of the themes throughout running throughout the festival. I, or maybe this was the general theme. I always lose track of the TCM themes. And it was especially nebulous this year. Yeah. It felt like, <laughs> but I yeah. think the kind of idea of reunions and coming back together was right. uh, one they were trying to get at. Yeah. it's uh, I can't remember how they call it. It was like together
1: again or something, but yeah, yeah, it yeah. was reunions yeah. was officially the theme of the festival, but this was, I don't know. I mean, there've been years when I've really tapped in. Like I definitely saw a lot of comedies, the comedy year. And there was the one year that it was like, adaptations of like novels and mm. plays it was like something like like that I, I remember i remember those stick out but then there were some years where i'm like oh okay, i guess there was a theme yeah but i didn't really yeah, yeah this they had kind
0: of like multiple smaller themes because one of them was literally wait till your father finally gets yeah. home
2: <laughs> oh yeah <Which> that was <laughs> that's speaking a phrase of one. the thing like they come from stefan sketches <laughs>
1: yeah uh, <laughs> all right crazy. uh all right, listeners, you're in luck. I finally get to talk again. Oh, thank um, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, to, to really Ill- illustrate how narrow my choices were this festival, <laughs> my next film is the first of two William Powell movies I saw, the first of two. Uh, not sorry, w- William Wyler. I also saw two William Powell, but I already talked about that. The first of two William Wyler movies, the first of two D- Betty Davis movies, and the first of three movies with a score by Max Steiner. Um, I, I, I just seem to keep uh stay in the staying in the same realm the entire time. But uh, I'm talking about 1940s. The Letter, directed by William Wyler and starring Betty Davis. So it's the uh, it's the Jezebel crew back together again. That's what they call um, themselves too. The yeah, Jezebel. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, the the letter, let me tell you, I don't know if any of you has seen it, um, but I'm adding this to the list of one of the great character introductions of all time. Oh, yeah. Let me talk about mm-hmm. how the movie opens. It's uh, a rubber plantation in, 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 in Singapore, but it's the evening. Everyone, things have calmed down. The rubber's dripping into the little buckets off the trees and the workers are chilling in hammocks and making food and playing and every, everything's just very relaxing. And then suddenly a shot rings out. And a man stumbles out of the front of the big, large, like central bungalow in the, the this rubber plantation. He's been shot, and following him comes Betty Davis in a gorgeous dress, who could, proceeds to unload the pistol into him. Even like after he is dead on the ground, just keeps like firing until it clicks. One, just one of my all-time favorite character introductions. Uh, without getting into spoilers, I also say this movie has a pretty great character outro <laughs> character exit uh to the the way the movie uh, ends is pretty great uh as far as the stuff in the middle it's 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 good it's not Jezebel which is uh a uh, a movie that I love and saw for the first time 2 years ago at the first at home d- during the first at home festival uh but yeah the, the um uh you've got uh, I've already forgotten his name the cinematographer tony gaudio or claudio or something like that uh to uh beautifully filmed black and white movie that like uh you know one thing i think about this era you know i, mean, I feel like we've been saying for 20 years that there aren't like movie stars anymore but the the idea of this era of great great big movie stars and movies being lit to make the movie stars look as striking or as beautiful oh, as, yeah. as possible There are, there are multiple shots of of betty davis like gazing out of a window at night with it has that thing of the like moonlight coming in through the slats of the blinds and like perfectly highlighting, and hiding highlighting her her betty davis eyes um yeah it's uh is that uh, why
3: they say it that way <laughs> yeah.
1: uh yeah so um gorgeous movie uh i'll say one thing that really stuck out to me that i scott you were mentioning how we often call out or at least like note when there's like problematic you know things in, sure. in the movies i feel like sometimes this this movie in in this way in this way alone reminded me of the searchers which is a movie that i think people with a lack of context understanding tend to say like oh that movie is racist as opposed to that movie is about a racist yes and i yeah. think the fact that these are white rubber plantation owners in singapore all of whose like employees or all servants or whatever are all uh, all Singaporeans, and a big part of the plot is that the reason she killed this guy that she was having an affair with is because he married a local woman, and like that's it's not just that he married someone else while he was having an affair with her. With her is that he married an Asian woman or whatever. Like, there's a lot of the way that the Asian characters are treated that uh, uh, is is troubling. But i I think the I think the movie is aware that is that 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 these. Um, characters are kind of like you know living their lives in their high drama with no uh real care for the fact that it has an actual effect on the people of the place that they live or they become when they are made to realize like to confront uh actual native made- singaporean people uh they are uh incensed by having to 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 negotiate with them or, or or whatever so i think it's maybe about racists more than it is racist that which it probably is racist too but um uh, well both yeah. can be true yeah 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 definitely but still a uh, very gorgeous movie i, I you know William wyler's uh, uh great max steiner's score like i said th- i saw three movies with max steiner scores this is probably my favorite of the three uh scores um and uh yeah so that's that's the letter 1940 what's next
4: well, next up, more pre code. We're talking, and now this is a pre- quintessential pre code uh, <laughs> in that it was made before 1934. Um, it is Cocktail Hour um, which, uh, was on digital, but it was a new restoration and it was, I mean, Julie saw this as well. Gorgeous. What a gorgeous, uh, restoration of this movie. It was so rich. And cause this was a nitrate movie, I believe. Yeah. Uh, the print that they, they restored was nitrate. So they, they, what is it called? Wet gated it, something like that i've heard that uh, phrase yeah yeah um but in order to scan it that's what they had to do and boy yeah it was just it just looked absolutely beautiful so um this is not unlike a lot of um uh pre-code movies about about a lady who she just has such a hard time finding love that's not exactly true at all she's incredibly uh she she's uh got men throwing themselves at her all the time and it's and she's just kind of like whatever <laughs> like it's really it's hilarious um and it was um uh bb uh daniels, daniels yes um who was you know the former uh uh fiance and co-star of harold lloyd and harold lloyd's granddaughter uh came out with carrie beecham to like discuss it beforehand because also this movie is a very early what is it the second movie i think she said of uh for randolph scott second or third and this was like the 900th movie of bb daniel's not true but a lot of movies um and uh uh, suzanne lloyd like was driven around as a child by randolph scott which is a very strange like mixture of things um but uh yeah I, i this was you know this was a fun movie it's basically about a A woman who refuses uh she's a a not cartoonist like an artist basically like she draws ads for uh, a magazine her editor is randolph scott who uh they clearly love each other and they neither one of them really like will say it to the other one really like they kind of say it in jest and that's about it um and she wants to go on vacation. And he's like, "Nah, you don't want to go on vacation. You want to get married because you're a woman. And that's what women do.
0: Yeah. And, and- when he said that, I thought the audience was going to burn the theater to the ground. <laughs> like I, they they booed, they hit, they went berserk. And I'm like, can we just acknowledge this is a plot device? Like, you yeah, know, yeah. this is a plot device, right? And
4: it's also the first five minutes of the movie. Yes. <laughs> so maybe they're going somewhere with this. Yes. Um, And yeah, so, uh, she goes on this, uh, cruise ship to, not I guess it's, it's London. London, Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, on the cruise ship is a, uh, a Russian, uh, piano player and her kind of, uh, partner in is this Italian or Spanish, um, uh, opera singer. And, uh, she becomes friends with this, with the piano player and all this stuff. And she meets a guy who's kind of a roguish knave. And uh, he's played by Sidney Blackmer, which I've only ever seen as a much older guy. Who you know, he played uh, Roman Castevet in in uh, uh, Rosemary's Baby, and he's supposed to be like the the debonair, like handsome rogue. And it's just like he's no, he's yeah, a weird old Satanist. Like no. <laughs> that, he really didn't do it. Like even in the context of it being 1933, like he just didn't do it for me. Like as a as a as a character in any fashion. Um, she's also constantly trying to easily let down this, this younger French guy that she's sort of, I guess, hooked up with or whatever, but he's like in love with her. And it's like brought his mom to meet her and stuff. And she's just like, I do not want to marry you. And he just like refuses to let, so there's a lot of that stuff, which is like, you know, we're, are we supposed to like him? Like for most of the movie, I don't like him. And then he does something later on where you go, I kind of feel bad for him now, you know? Um, but yeah, so it's a lot of that. And then Sidney Blackmore is a jerk. Uh, and all, constantly she's getting all these like flowers and notes and stuff from Randolph Scott. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's a lot of like her realizing what she actually wants. And I'm going to give you two guesses as to what that is. But yeah.
0: Um, spy say...
1: smashing.
4: Yeah. Well, spy smashing. <laughs> weirdly enough.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the plot doesn't matter. We're here for sexy people bantering and looking gorgeous. And I think it delivered on that count. Yeah, um yeah, I think so. I, you know, Bibi Daniels, she like looks a lot like Kay Francis and she was like acting a lot like Kay Francis. Yeah. So it was like it was it felt kind of like knockoff Kay Fran- like discount yeah, Kay bit, Francis. Yeah. Um but like she got the job done. Um and like you David talked about like the quintessential pre-code thing of like women like chasing their desires and wanting sex and all that and like you know, people talk about how movies are very sexless now. That's like a conversation that is in the discourse. Mm-hmm. And I think it's even like we don't even need to see the sex acts. We just want to see people that want to have sex. Yep. And this is a movie of people who want to have sex yep, and yep. they are having it. Um And like a lot of it, there's one character who like I won't. Get into who too much of who it is, but there's one character like his wife not only knows he has affairs and is okay with it, but like ranks the women he has affairs. Like she'll be like, "Oh, this one's this one's a step down, honey." Like she just like doesn't care. Um, <laughs> there's also like there's a scene where she's flirting with the roguish knave Sidney Blackmer, and like it, it turns into meta flirting which I thought was really cool where like, he's like, now's the time where you drop your book and she like drops her book. And she's like, how am I doing? (laughs) And I was like, this is the content we crave. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, What else? Oh yeah. Some of the things people say in this movie, I was just so into it. Like at one point, like instead of her friend, like makes a joke. And instead of being like, Oh my God, you slay me. She just goes, you extinguish me. And I'm like, yeah. So make that a, make that a thing, please. And then like someone's hitting on her and she just goes like, go somewhere. Like, I just, I love it. Um, But yeah, it's, it's also like, I, I read this theory once about how, like in films of this era, like the female audience knew that like the women had to get married at the end. Like they knew that going in, but they knew it like kind of didn't count so they're like, we are yeah. here for the first eighty-five minutes, where she has a lot of sex and looks amazing and is an artist and travels the world, and then in the last five, we we know, but it's like they were able to live vicariously through these characters because of what happens in the first eighty-five minutes, um, and it's very much like that.
4: Um, well, and her friend Olga, the piano player, yeah. never has to get married because she's the friend, and so like. Yeah so like they can still live vicariously through her and like i love the scene when they go so they're in london and they go to a pub and they just get absolutely trashed Mm -hmm. and they're like they're like flirting kind of with this like fat old guy and they're just having a great time and then a young french guy comes in and she's like get out of here and then like somebody comes into like starts something with him and then she's like, No, you can't talk to my friend that way. Yeah. And then like it cuts and and then the two of them wake up in their hotel room and just are so hungover. And it's just like, boy this, this is very relatable to yeah. being just like heart, heartbroken and drunk and trying to have a good time and then feeling like absolute ass the next morning. Like,
0: Oh yeah. The, the part where they wake up hungover is so funny. Cause one of them just pokes the other one for like 10 full seconds and then there's like a five second pause and the other one just goes, no. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I've been that person. Oh I yeah, get that. It's yeah. yeah. It's, 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 this is like, I mean, I barely got into this movie. I think I've I've mentioned in past years, I don't get a press pass. I'm living the standby life. It's a bunch of vagabonds and hobos in my line. (laughs) We are just living on a dream, like living on a prayer. So I like got into this. I missed the entire introduction. I was up in the balcony, but it's like, this is the kind of stuff that I love TCM Fest for is they just dig up this random crap you've never heard of. And it's a very good time.
4: Yeah. And there's enough people in it or behind the scenes that you recognize that you go, okay, that not you necessarily, but like that people who are just there at the fest might go, okay, I'm I'm sure I'll go see this. This seems good. They do it. Their programs are always amazing. Like the actual, like physical booklets. Um, and they give you such good context for everything like TCM does in general. And and so that's why this one, I was just like, you know what, I'll go see cocktail hour. Like I've never heard of this movie. Uh, I know who Randolph Scott is. I mean, not That's not, I don't just know who he is. I've seen him on other stuff, but much later on, this is something, you know, way before he started doing Westerns and stuff. So yeah, it was just a good time. It's, uh, it's maybe not the best of the pre-code movies I've ever seen or anything like that, but it's, it's exactly what you want from a pre-code movie. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, um, moving on sex. Yeah. Full disclosure. We did not actually see the next movie at TCM fest. We saw it scandals. um, two days after the festival ended because they were playing
2: on 35,
0: they're playing on 35, but we took a poll and we decided to include it. I just wanted to disclose that it is, I'm all, fatal I'm all a- for it. Yep, it is sorry. fatal attraction. Yeah. Scott and I saw it. Uh, I,
2: I have, I think a, throughout the whole quarantine process, there's been a festering interest in, er- uh, erotic thrillers throughout, uh, film land. <laughs> I've noticed way more people talking about them than in the past. And I, I have been part of that, uh, enjoyment renaissance i've been watching them um, pretty are you saying the two things are linked the the i'm saying and you know draw your own conclusions i i wouldn't necessarily always say correlation equals causation but certainly being pent up in our houses for a couple of years um festering desires manifesting in uh violence you know, I think there's a, a sort of explosive connection between the two. Um,
0: Our marriage is fine, by the way, if anyone's worried.
2: I was worried. But,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, because I, I tend to think the thing that Julie was just talking about, about so many mainstream movies being so aggressively sexless <laughs> these days. That seems to be, to me, why I've been, like, craving that sort of.
2: Sort yeah, of- I think that feeds into it for sure. Um I guess I've just noticed a greater spike in very recent years. Whereas I think we've all been talking about the sexistness of American cinema for kind of the past 10 years. Um, And maybe it's just reached a fewer pitch and maybe the pandemic urged along. But either way, like the fact that the American Cinematic has a running program now of consistently playing erotic thrillers on Tuesday evenings, and uh, Karina Longworth is doing a whole podcast series about them, like people people are out there, they're swinging. Um, And so, Failed Attraction has been on my list for a while. And uh really lived up to it. You know, I've seen some great erotic throws over the past couple years. Basic instinct, I think, is a full-on masterpiece. I was amazed how good it is. I can't believe how kind of trash it's been throughout the years. Uh, body of evidence, maybe less so. Um, you know, uh, but uh fatal attraction was on the upper tier of what I've seen. And I understand why it was such a big hit. It really, you know, for those who don't know, it's about Michael Douglas, of course, being Michael Douglas, playing the um sort of avatar for all uh, upper middle class white guys world around um has just a random weekend where his wife's away he loves his wife loves his kid happy life um but he meets glenn close and kind of gets a fling going and they have a wild sexy weekend and then she just starts stalking him and stalking him more and stalking him more and he keeps escalating and escalating and escalating um and direct by adrian line i was i, get, I always trip myself up if it's line or lynn but i think it's line. um and it's really sharply directed, super tense. There's a great final sequence that's like ratcheting up the tension just by water running, which is I love whenever a filmmaker can hone in on the everyday things and be like, something's gonna happen, um, and it really kind of digs out. I, I think Michael Douglas's like sense of guilt throughout the movie of like, it's just constantly manifesting and growing and getting more and more unwieldy through this manifestation of moving close. And it really taps into, I think, uh, a thing that a lot of comfortable upper middle-class guys experience of like, things are fine. I'm going to do this one low indiscretion and then feel horrible about it forever. And it, it really, um, it, it digs that out in very interesting and inventive ways. I, I, yeah, I thought it was, Total gas.
0: Um, so yeah, I, I went as well. I had never seen it. I knew the famous line. Um, right. And I knew the, the thing with the rabbit. So I covered my eyes for that because that is very sad. Um, I don't know if this is my kind of movie. It, it like I get what he's saying and how like if you view Glenn Close as like a manifestation of guilt and less of a real person, I think it plays better. But if you're thinking of her as a real person, it almost seems like the movie is rooting for us to want to get rid of a clearly mentally ill person. Um, it's also like there's some complications in the middle that arise that kind of balances it more, where like, yes, she's clearly stalking him, and that's not great. But then he, you learn new things about him, and you're kind of like, OK, but then I feel like it sort of loses that balance again and just sort of tilts towards this maybe misogynist angle of like, what if a crazy bitch ruined your life? Wouldn't that be the worst? Um, so I get what you're saying, but I, I, it's also from the time it was made, I can't help but kind of see that misogynist panic baked into it.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, all erotic thrillers are to some degree exploring misogyny because it's all about fear of women and what they'll do to you and whatever else. But like, it's just as much about that as anything else. And the violence that he enacts on her, which is much more direct than any violence she enacts on him is like pretty graphic and troubling in its own right. And it kind of like digs at um, all the underlying misogyny that you could read more overtly through the film and whether or not, you know, you think that's the false explanation, exploration of that or not, I can see, but I think it, it digs at, and I think it was a big hit for a reason. I think it digs at something very true about people and very uncomfortable in, in an entertaining uh, spectacle, which is what all great Hollywood cinema does.
0: Yeah. Maybe we just saw it with a bunch of sickos because the things they were cheering for a hundred percent, but
2: that's, what's, that's what's interesting about these movies is like it taps into something very real and very honest about people that is uncomfortable to talk about. And that's, that's exciting about art.
0: Yeah. Um, uh,
2: Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: Oh, just some, some miscellaneous side notes. It has a very fat dog. Who's very cute.
1: Absolutely.
0: Just a real thick boy. And, um, all the women in this movie I was very concerned about the health of their skin and hair. Like every movie every woman in this movie just looks like she came out of a deep fryer. Like it's just like there's oh, yeah. their self tanning and the bleached hair. I just like <laughs> wanted to like throw body lotion at all of them anyway. You were saying. <laughs>
1: uh I it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember feeling similar to the way you do Julie which um means it didn't surprise me when i learned that uh apparently the the screenplay was changed after glenn close had already signed on and, and yeah. she she was not entirely happy with the way that the movie you know turned into full on like being so unforgiving of 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 her um but uh yeah i i love it i love Adrian Line, so i still like the movie a lot but i definitely when i think of it i do have that i don't know that uh discomfort at the at the way that she's she's treated her depicted that is okay bad well let's move on to a guy who never mistreated women ever mike hammer <laughs> uh kyle and i both saw uh i the jury from 1953 in 3d uh in fantastic 3d i thought yeah. it looked it was a brand new restoration and it looked uh it, it looked great um and also the but the uh the only mike hammer movie i'd seen is kiss me deadly yeah um and so i do i was not familiar with this actor uh what's his name, his name is biff something
4: yeah oh, ryan on. i think it is everyone's like i the dreary.
1: um
4: not Armando Sante. No, he did the biff, remake yeah.
1: biff elliot is his elliot yeah biff elliot and this guy i can't imagine who Th- who this guy was meant to play other than like him <laughs> it's such a great performance I-, I don't know if you agree that he's like he's got this like pursed angry mumble and he just seems like a regular frustrated small like asshole yeah who's just like we're moving his way through the world through sheer force um and but but not in like a jack reacher way of this guy being like just expert at everything no it's a very angry man for whom violence is always the first resort yeah (laughs) and it's it's such a great performance i i I think
4: it is super interesting and because when we think of like film noir private detective guys they're you know they're, they're you got your, you got your Sam Spade, you got your Philip Marlowe, and they're much more um, cerebral, I guess. Yeah. You know, where they actually like figure things out using their brains, um, whereas Mike Hammer, like, is just a blunt instrument. Like, he's just, like you said, he's yeah. just angry all the time. With the first thing we see him do in the movie, so it opens with somebody killing uh, a, a man who is uh, uh, a one-armed man. A one-armed man. He kills the one-armed man. Yeah. Um, or they kill the one-armed man, and so then as he's dying from this gunshot wound, he's, he's crawling toward the camera in really cool 3d. But then the very next thing that happens after that is the police are in the apartment. And my camera just comes barreling in because this was a friend of his. And he's just like, oh, who who killed him? I need to find out who killed him like through gritted teeth and everything like that. And then some guy just throws, like just says something kind of snide to him because <laughs> one of the cops and without even like, there's no moment where he thinks about what he's going to do or anything like that. He Hammer just like sh- shoves the guy up against the wall and all of the like China plates on the wall yeah. fall down and break. Like yeah. he just absolutely crushes this guy against the wall. Yeah. And, and- there's
1: another, another part where he goes to see like the, uh the, the, the rich guy who's like at the top of the rackets game or whatever. Yeah. And his like assistant or his uh, henchman, right? I mean, like, gets the drop on my camera, but my camera just like sees him and just like starts wailing. Yeah.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not even a drawn pistol will make my camera stop and think about it for a second. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting movie because it's like, Anyway, before we get into like the actual movie movie, but like, um, I guess Mickey Spillane didn't really think that, um, Ralph Meeker was particularly good as my camera. It was this guy. Me yeah. me deadly. This was the guy that he thought was like the perfect, my camera. And I can absolutely see that I've, you yeah, know, I, if anybody want to throw
1: shade on, on Ralph Meeker, but no, I, I, do, I think he I, a great I job, do but... love, I do love this Pavilion guy so much.
4: Yeah, it's just it's an inch and it's a way different performance cuz it's so hot all the time. Like there is nothing cool about this film noir. You know what I mean? Like if there's nothing there, the other characters might be a little icier or whatever like that but like Hammer is not I don't I don't know what we're supposed to make of Hammer. Like I he's just like a or a dope you know what i mean like he's just he just barrels in and he you know uh the sexy lady asks him if he wants a drink and he's like i'd take a beer you know like he's just <laughs> kind of that guy um and um, <laughs> he's too good you know he, he's like i'm not gonna drink a whiskey i'll just have a beer and it's just like it's it's such a silly um kind of weird performance but like you, you get especially by the end you get the kind of like hurt inside in a way that i was not expecting based on most of the movie like he he's he's not just angry he's like legitimately like hurt and crushed by what's going on um which i which was surprising but um but it's it's like the cops the cops are just like well let's let my camera you know do some of our dirty work for us uh, find out some stuff and he gets this list of names to go check out over half of them are sexy ladies and they all just want to immediately have sex with him, (laughs) which is a very Mickey Spillane thing where it's like, my camera doesn't need to say or do anything. He just walks into a room and he's like immediately like batting off women with a, with a bat. And he has almost no truck for any of them. He doesn't care. Um, He just wants to get to the bottom. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: It's uh, uh, the, uh, the 3d is um, uh, fun. There's, there's uh You know, there's very noir use of 3D, and there's a part where my camera is smoking a cigarette, and he's done with the cigarette, and he flicks the cigarette right at the camera. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, and and uh, one of the sexy ladies is like, uh, uh, oh yeah, because there's twins. Yeah, there's twins. Are both sexy ladies who want to have sex with my camera, but one of them (laughs) is like a uh, marksman, I guess. uh, Yeah. And she like points a rifle at the camera. There's a lot of fun uh silly 3d stuff uh there's also uh, uh reminded me of uh like um is it peter lori and the Maltese falcon where you realize like oh that bad guy is gay like they're like yeah, yeah. not that well coded at all because mike hammer found pictures of him and his buddy traveling europe together and it's like gay <laughs>
4: yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's like it could not even it's not even thin it's not even thinly veiled there's no veil yeah. it's just like you just see uh they just never come right out and say it but yeah it's yeah, it's, it's just one of two those.
1: men standing next to each other in paris and it's like <laughs> look at these <laughs> look at these fruits <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> um i don't think the mystery comes off particularly well like i i never once i was never like i wonder who did it like I, I just kind of basically knew from the beginning and like i don't really understand and granted this was late at night this was the last movie of the day and it was at whatever time it was nine forty-five or whatever yeah, yeah. um so i was tired so i was maybe not paying the most attention um also which i'm sure you ran into as well 3d glasses over real glasses is not the most is not the best in the whole wide world Mm -hmm. and so i was constantly trying to move my head to make sure that like i was getting the right angle all the time um so i by the end i did not understand like what the mist like he was just like it's all connected all these people showed up at his house and it was just like did they like i don't i don't know why you were investigating yeah
1: i don't mean it's been the better part of a week and I don't yeah. remember. I don't remember I don't it. remember. But I I still remember that I really liked the movie and I'm really glad I saw it in 3D. Yeah. A lot of times at film festivals, you know, I like to generally when I go to movie theater I like to get the best seat that I can. Yeah. Often at film festivals I sacrifice that in favor of like easiest egress cuz I just yeah. want to like get out after. But this A being the last movie of the day but also being in 3D, I did like try to make sure I was as uh perfectly positioned as possible. And it turns out I was right behind the guy who did the restoration. I don't know when they did the introduction and they called out the guy. He was right in front of me. Oh, that's awesome. And he he went. So I, I guess I picked a pretty good spot if I'm right behind the guy who did the restoration. Did you give him a big high five? I should have. Yeah. All right. Are are we moving on to Saturday? God, this is going to be a long fucking episode. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We all saw a lot of movies. That was the problem. And also, well, so Kyle, you and I ended Friday together and started Saturday together that's hot. Uh, with, and we uh, didn't
4: we didn't say hello to each other either time.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> because right. you're married. Um,
1: yeah, we both right. saw this is my uh, first of three bogeys uh, um, uh, in in this festival. Movie starring
0: Ain- Humphrey Bogart, not like golf bogeys.
1: Yeah, production. yeah, or like uh, Top Gun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, bogeys. Bad, uh, no, um, Michael Crichton's Angels with Dirty Faces. Uh, And this is the one that I I almost missed because it took me forever to get my Pete's coffee. Um, But uh, uh, it was also, I like sometimes, like I said, we were talking about sometimes the introduction is like, an interview with someone famous who's uh, uh, associated with the movie sometimes it's you know from the tcm hosts or they're like stable of introductions but sometimes it's just like here's a famous person who really likes this movie <laughs> and so angels of 30 faces was introduced by keith Carradine because who apparently just loves james cagney and he just like talked about james cagney but also in a very there is a problem sometimes when actors are doing the introductions that they tend to go over their allotted time uh, a little bit because they're actors but keith Carradine. and keith Carradine, true keith Carradine fashion was just like a man of few words just like yeah. talked for about six and a half minutes about james Cagney. He was like all right let's start the movie <laughs> yeah he was just like I, I, i'm done talking what enjoy the movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it was great uh but yeah fun um uh another 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 fun movie it is it, it uh it is also fun i feel like i use the word fun too much but it is fun to see someone like a Humphrey Bogart before he became like Humphrey Bogart. Cause he's yeah. not like, he's neither the main like hero or the main villain. He's kind of like second villain, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, in the movie, he's just like, he's like the highest ranked henchman in, in the movie. Uh, and it, so it's fun to see like actors like that in, in earlier roles when it's still clear, like, Oh, the camera like loves them. They're, uh, uh fantastic on screen. But, uh, yeah this is a uh, james Cagney plays a um uh a a gangster i guess yeah it's basically a a poor kid who went one way because uh he he and his he and his buddy when he was a kid were uh robbing freight trains like parked in, in like the train yard um and uh he got a he got caught and his friend got away he went to prison and started a whole life of crime and prison cycles and his friend played in as, as an adult by Pat O'Brien uh went to join the clergy and and became a a priest and now he's James Cagney's character has come back to the the neighborhood and is kind of getting involved. It has a bit of like the um a bit of the DNA of like the uh uh cool teacher movies, you know, <laughs> like like Dangerous yeah. Minds or something, but like in its own way, because you've got James Cagney, like coaching basketball with these, like this bunch of ruffians, but then he's also like helping them like steal shit or sending them off yep. to, to steal shit too. Uh, but it, so it is like a, the, the movie of like cute, tough guy with, you know, with, with uh, with moppets or, or, or whatever. But um, again, in its own way, uh, what did you think, Kyle?
4: I had, this is, I hadn't seen it before. This is one of those that I had always wanted to see. Also weirdly, it seems like every TCM Fest, whether I know it or not, I, I end up seeing at least one Michael Curtiz movie. And that's just that's just how it works. What's wrong with that?
1: He made no. a lot. Yeah,
4: big fan, big fan of Michael Curtiz. Um, this is also based- this is,
1: sorry. My second, of, uh, first of three bogeys, second of three Max Steiner scores. So I, I'm keeping track, trying to Good. keep track. Um,
4: Um, I I thought this movie was dynamite. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I hadn't, I actually haven't seen all that much Cagney. Uh, I saw white heat when I was in college and that was kind of it, I think. Um, and and maybe I've seen like Yankee doodle dandy or something like that, but like in terms of his, like his actual gangstery roles, um, I still need to see, you know, like public enemy and, um, what's the other big one It doesn't matter, but, um, so I didn't know really what to expect of this one. Like Keith Carradine talked a little bit about like when people do impressions of Cagney, it's this movie that they're doing an impression of because he's got the he, uh, Cagney, I guess, based his performance on when he was growing up on uh, actual like um, uh, dope addicted pimps who would just like stand around and like they would have these weird ticks and jitters all the time because they were like tweaking basically. And, and that's what any, anybody doing an impression of Cagney, that's what they do. Um, which is funny uh but he is so good in this movie like i was really not surprised but he just like has such an intensity to him that i was just like oh man this is great and then pat o'brien kind of has the thankless roles like the goody two-shoes but he's super great in it um and uh the dead end kids are in it um which they went on to become known by a number of names including like the east side east side kids and the bowery boys uh, bowery boys is one. i don't remember the middle one but um
1: okay yeah this is there's you know i like old movies but you got the tcm crowd you've got people applauding for <laughs> the dead end kids never ever yeah. <laughs> uh, heard of but yeah there was a lot of applause for the dead end kids, kids yeah. when, they, when they showed up
4: and i uh, i didn't know until after the movie that they were the bowery boys and i it's like i've heard of that name before but um i seen the movie dead end did not put two and two together until after the movie either. I was just like, Oh, that's why they're called the, I get it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. Those kids were really good. Um, it's just a, it's just a good movie. And this, I think is a touchstone movie for anybody who likes Martin Scorsese. This feels like a very, like, uh, he saw this when he was a kid and was like, okay. That's my entire career. It's all about street violence versus Catholicism. <laughs> it's right. Just yeah. like, um, and which, which one's going to prevail and everything like that. Um, I thought it was excellent. I'm a, I I was a huge fan of this one. This was, I don't know if it's my favorite of the fest, but it was definitely one of my favorites of the fest.
2: Okay. All right. Uh, we started the day off with lighter fare, uh, 1958, yeah. I want to say houseboat. Um, Nice, pleasant Cary Grant, uh, Sophia Loren comedy with a very interesting backstory that I think Julie wrote down and we'll go into detail about, but I'll just kind of give an overview of the plot. Um, Cary Grant plays a diplomat, want to say. Um, wasn't very involved in family life. Wasn't really there for his kids. His wife dies in car accident, I want to say. Yeah, very suddenly. So he goes back home, expects to just kind of shove his kids off on a relative.
0: Which I should just say, like if you were a dad in... Really, any time before like the 80s, yeah, right. And your wife died. It was expected that your kids would live somewhere else until you got remarried. That yeah. that was. It. Wow. He's not shitty for that. No, for sure. Yeah,
2: I'm just saying, like, he's so he's following the bull, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Um, but uh, he kind of gets there, and his uh, in laws are kind of throwing digs at him for not being present in his kids' lives, and he's like, I'll show you being present in your kids' lives. You're gonna come live with me, kids, and they go off and live in his terrible tiny DC apartment. Um, and that doesn't go well. And so they, uh, attempt to move back to like the family estate. They have like a guest house. Um, but the guest house gets destroyed in a very amusing set piece. That's probably too complicated to explain. Um, and all of which leads them to living on the titular houseboat, um, which is of course in very much disrepair and needs all kinds of tending to, but of course draws the family back together. Um, this was part of a number of films Cary Grant made throughout the fifties to kind of change his image from like this uh you know womanizing cad to more of a family man um i I don't think it's necessarily as successful as like room for one more or um i'm trying to think of others from that era but anyway um but it has some good bits in it carrie grant's great as always sophia loren plays kind of the family maid she comes from a who can't cook or clean right she comes from a well-to-do background um and kind of takes the job as a means of escaping her own uh, stifling father and kind of life that's set out for her and kind of views it as an adventure. But yeah, isn't really set out to be a maid, but um, has a great way with the kids and kind of draws the family close together in her own way. Um, the supporting cast is what I often refer to as like a parade of late 50s nobodies who like would have had a great career if only they'd come on the scene 15 years ago. But unfortunately the entire industry was going to change in a few years and the old style of acting was going to get shuffled to television. So it's a bunch of people who you mostly never heard of. Although um, Murray Hamilton plays um, the uh, Cary Grant's kind of right-hand man in the army um, and quits himself fairly well. Um, yeah. I mean, it was a pleasant way to start the day. It didn't kind of rock my world. And as much as I'd love Cary Grant and my favorite actor, it wasn't like top tier, but he has some, decent bits in it as well.
0: Yeah. um, So the, the backstory with it is that so Cary Grant had worked with Sophia Loren on a prior movie. He fell in love with her. He became obsessed with her. So his wife, Betsy Drake, had written this movie as a vehicle for the two of them since their marriage was kind of falling apart. He took this script and was like, I'll make it with Sophia Loren instead, and then she'll fall in love with me. It didn't work. Um, so it was like a very like weird set where she like suddenly married Carlo Ponti in the middle of shooting and that like really inflamed things. So like wild behind the scenes story, but like that's not on screen. Yeah, um, I mean,
2: they have great chemistry on screen. Great
0: chemistry. And like Sophia Loren, she's just a star. Like you see her, it's early in her career, but she'd been acting a bit by this point. And she, she's just a star. She's so funny. And I love that like they do that old Hollywood thing of like, when there used to be stars from other countries, they didn't have to do an American accent. They just made up a reason why this woman from Italy was where she was. But then that's, we're so much better for it because she like sings and curses in Italian and like goes shopping for prosciutto. And it's like, they would do that with like Ingrid Bergman too. Like it would just be like a woman from Sweden in the middle of like Nebraska for no (laughs) reason. But like, that's so, I love that. Um, And yeah, Cary Grant and kids is actually a surprisingly great combo because like you said, by the fifties, he's trying to change his image. And the, the way it's always played for comedy is Cary Grant is like, here's my life. My life is figured out. I have a certain way of doing things. And then you add kids and chaos ensues. And it's very funny because he gets very ruffled by that. Like he gets very flustered by it. Um, I thought it was kind of like a rather nuanced depiction of fatherhood for the era. Like we said, I mean, it used to be like fathers were not expected to do much beyond be the breadwinner in that time. And this is a movie about a father getting to know his kids and bonding with his kids, um, becoming a better father. Um, there's a, a really touching scene with um, I think his oldest son where they talk about death, which again, this is a family movie from 1958 and like talk about becoming one with the universe. And I was just like, what am I watching? But it was like really beautiful. And they're talking about like, Taking a picture of water and pouring it to the ocean, and your soul becomes one with the world. And it was like really beautiful and unexpected. Um, there's some like class issues. Like they talk about how like Sophia Loren is the nanny, and like the in laws start making digs about that. So he like takes her to the country club to just show everyone what they're missing. Um, you also get to see what a laundromat looks like in the 1950s, which is very wild. The washing machines are like tiny and they all just like sit there and stare at him. There's a great scene where he's at the laundromat doing the laundry because Sophia Loren doesn't know how. And he gets caught up in gossip with two other housewives. So he just keeps putting quarters in the machine so he can keep listening to the gossip. Um,
2: and then the two women overhears him gossip at his life because like a friend comes in and like mentions something offhand about this nanny he's living with on a houseboat. And so then the woman puts in more coins in her machine.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, It's a nice it was, bit of
2: business. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it
0: was, Yeah, not top tier, but very sweet, very entertaining. Um, Probably one of my top movies set on a houseboat. Absolutely. I I think I can confidently say that. Scott, Uh, you've
1: got another great transition right here. Oh, God,
2: yeah. Well, more boat stuff. Um, Very sharp uh, genre shift, though. Uh, This is the murder mystery, The Last of Sheila um which i hadn't heard about until like a year ago or whatever but all of a sudden like became something people are talking about all the time it's like one of the best murder mysteries ever and i have to agree i, I don't typically like these kind of movies where like someone's gathered all these people together and there's someone who's died and one of them killed them and you got to figure it out i i know genre heads like love this shit i find it really boring and it's like there's not this many eccentric people who know each other. These these people are a little too eccentric (laughs) to all be friends. Like they'd be casting each other out, make more boring friends. So they can be the eccentric one. Um, But one of the film's strengths is that it's not really about like that eccentric of people. It's about people in the movie industry who uh, like in about a year before the movie is set, a woman they knew died in an accident, hit and run job and has always just been regarded as like kind of senseless tragedy, but, maybe comes back to haunt them now. Um, And, but they're all gathered on this boat because they want to be part of this like mega producer uh, played by James Coburn's next movie. And so they all have a very distinct ulterior motive that is like tied up in just like movie industry ego stuff that it's screenwriters, the stunning pair of Stephen Stonheim and Anthony Perkins um, would be very familiar with. And they kind of base the movie on these like scavenger hunts that they would do around New York city which um, kind of provides like the genesis of the plot. So James Coburn gathers all these people together under the auspices of putting together a movie, but he's really putting together an elaborate scavenger hunt for them um, that is supposed to reveal kind of what happened to the woman they all knew from a year ago. Um, But then people start dying, of course, as they do. And I think unlike a lot of these kind of murder mysteries, these people actually seem concerned about dying. It's not just like, ooh, what a fun game we're playing. It's like, oh shit, like someone just died. And that's like, this horrifying tragedy. This is like friend we knew and all that. Um, The rest of the cast is filled up by Richard Benjamin, Diane Cannon, Joan Hackett. Once again, James Mason, Ian McShane and Raquel Welch. So a very lively crew of people um, each playing. I mean, I said like they're not too eccentric. They're definitely distinct characters. Diane Cannon, uh, apparently based on a real casting agent, definitely has the biggest kind of presence in the film um, and is incredibly charming throughout, but the rest of them are just like, Interesting, distinct, nuanced, well-textured people, you know, Sondheim and Perkins, not prolific screeners necessarily, but very creative, thoughtful people. And they put a lot of thought into crafting these characters in addition to building this super great murder mystery that really plays really well and hits like the beats you would want from that. But it's kind of textured by... Um, these people really having like their own lives and own desires and things they're trying to do with their lives. That isn't just like trying to fulfill the role they're playing within the film. Um, it really feels like this is a very sudden interruption and weird event that's happening in their lives. It's not just like they just exist to be Agatha Christie characters or whatever. Um, it's directed by Herbert Ross, who is I think kind of an undervalued filmmaker, at least by me. Cause like I saw his name come up and I was like, yeah, Herbert Ross, whatever. But then it's like a pretty stylish movie. And I was thinking about it. Like he did like pennies from heaven um goodbye girl footloose and like he's a pretty versatile director and has a distinct stamp and is really like evidence of what a good journeyman can bring of like tapping in the material in a very active way and thinking about what the camera can do even if he doesn't have necessarily his own identity and it's very much the case here like he draws out everything that's great about the screenplay and finds a unique interesting way to uh, portray it without making himself necessarily the star and he gives a lot over to the actors and they have a lot to do with uh, its success yeah it's it's really really good Yeah, I saw it for
1: the first time earlier this year in preparation for our Stephen Sondheim profile episode. And our uh, guest, I don't know if you listened to the episode, our guest uh, Sondheim expert Mike Schutt uh, told us that apparently it has long been rumored that Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins were more than just co-screenwriters. Oh, I uh, don't doubt that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. uh, What are we moving on to?
4: Uh, What are we around to? It's on to me. Hi, everyone. Uh, I went and saw at the Hollywood Legion Theater. I went and saw The Flame and the Arrow, directed by Jacques Tourneur, uh, one of my favorite um, directors of things that aren't like this movie. (laughs) Um, This is uh, a... during the, the pandemic, I was, you know, trying to find stuff to watch as I think a lot of people did. And I realized I hadn't actually seen all that many ad, like adventure movies, you know, like from the, the golden age of adventure movies. And so I tried to watch quite a few of those. And so I, there's still, you know, big swashbuckling adventure movies. And I'm a big, uh, Burt Lancaster fan. I think he's such a fascinating and super charismatic actor, Um, I recently saw, watched him in Vera Cruz, um, which was another one that his company co-produced. Um, and he's, he, he chose to take the kind of like secondary role so that he could play like the, the, the rogue, you know, the, the knave, uh, opposite Gary Cooper. So I was super excited for this one playing him playing like a Robin hood type character, supposedly, uh although not i was gonna say a fictional one but robin hood also maybe is partially fictional um in like northern uh italy uh, in an area called lombardy which is or Lombardy, depending on who you're talking to um who uh that has been taken over by the germans in the medieval times and so he kind of plays this man of the of the forest who um is just like i don't care what happens my forest is for me ha 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 kind of thing and um the hessians sort of like take over uh they kidnap his son because his son his son's mother (laughs) of whom uh dardo is the is the burt lancaster character didn't marry but uh she is now uh betrothed or wed or whatever to the uh the evil bad guy the hawk who is this um lord ulrich guy um, and so they kidnap the son to try to turn him into a proper gentleman. Whereas he's just, he just likes hanging out with his dad out in the forest and stuff. A uh, bunch of people come to his age to try to rescue the kid. They get run out of town and basically become the merry men for lack of a better term. Um, it, one of whom is, uh, and maybe the most interesting of like the character twists is the kind of like aristocrat, um, Marchese de blah, 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 who, uh, who clearly does not want to he's like i don't care about my countrymen at all i just want to marry into money basically um and he he is sort of betrothed to virginia mayo's character like the the duke's niece um and uh she really wants nothing to do with him and then he gets uh run out of town because he doesn't pay his taxes (laughs) and uh so he sort of takes up with dardo and then the marquesas uh troubadour whose name is Troubadour uh, is played by Norman Lloyd. Norman Lloyd in tights is not something I ever thought I needed to see. So, but anyway, this was the, this was the Academy conversation, which happens every year where Ben Burt and Craig Barron do a whole presentation about the movie or some aspect of this movie, of a movie. And then they present the movie. Um, th- this one was m- almost entirely about the fact that Burt Lancaster used to be a circus performer, like an actual acrobat trapeze artist kind of thing. And how his, co-star his uh, his buddy i guess a sidekick in the movie is was his actual like partner in the acrobat circus game um who does not have any lines because he had an apparently an incredibly thick new york accent that he could not hide and so he's just he just plays a a mute through the entire thing um and uh and on that level that was really entertaining it's a lot of big you know it's a lot of big sets that were reused from like the adventures of robin hood and just stuff that was on the warner brothers backlot and um really beautiful matte paintings they talked a lot about the matte paintings and the matte paintings were just absolutely stunning to make you know burbank look like um the the alps essentially um uh which was really really great but Bert lancaster does all his own stunts and they like actually at one point they infiltrate the castle um under the guise of being circus performers just so that they could do some circus acts that they actually did and you see close up that it is actually Bert lancaster doing all this stuff and the one there's one section where he does like act, like trapeze artist like um stuff and it's supposed to be over five you know like 40 feet or something like that and they shot it but in order for them to show wide enough of him doing it they had to like do it in cuts so that you could actually see him close up and stuff like that and so it looks like it's not him but before baron and um bert showed like an actual like bert lancaster climbing up like an outtake basically so you actually see it's him which was helpful because otherwise i would have thought it was a stuntman but no he did all his own stunts in it it's not like the most exciting movie in the whole wide world like the uh, other than that like um a lot of it is just it's it's just not robin hood basically <laughs> so like um you know whatever but it's it's lavish and lush and, and enjoyable and um there's they talked a little bit about how it's like you can see a little bit of Jacques turner in there and it's like i, I couldn't really uh, it just felt like he was just kind of a director for hire for, which is fine um there was not a ton of uh, people like to ascribe uh, tourist theories on <laughs> directors who a lot of times just took a job and that's what they did. Um, and that's fine too. Um, but yeah, so I enjoyed it well enough. It was on, um, 35. It looked really, you know, it was a cool, cool print. It looked really good. Uh, it's very colorful. Um, and, and the stunts were excellent. So for that, I appreciated it, but it was never, it was not like, it wasn't like the rip roaring, like success that I thought, like, um, Curtiz's uh, Robin hood or even like, uh, Mark of Zorro or something like that was.
1: All right. Uh speaking of 35mm, I went back to the pre-code well uh to see 1932's three on a match directed by Mervyn LeRoy. Uh and the three in question are Joan Blondell, and dvorak and once again, Betty Davis. This is my second Betty Davis and my second Bogart of the uh of the festival. Uh and that's really, I mean, those three and Humphrey Bogart are the reason to to watch uh Three on a Match. There's a uh the main reason there's other things to recommend but um it's fa- it's fascinating even obviously even this is even earlier than angel's 30 faces in 1932. this is a really young uh, uh or at least really green uh humphrey bogart and a and a young um betty davis uh the movie itself uh, i almost feel like i <laughs> i wonder if subconsciously i did that whole thing about what is and isn't quintessential film noir when i was talking a film noir quintessential pre-code when i was talking about jewel robbery as a way of saying that this there are ways there are ways in which three and the auto match feels like it's pre-code in terms of like it gets a little nastier than movies would get in a in a few years there's like there's a really cute not cutesy let's say toddler in the movie. And then there's also a part where Humphrey Bogart's like, we got to kill this kid. <laughs> uh, and so there's like some, uh, a little bit nastier stuff, but when it comes to what I was saying before about, um, moralizing, this is definitely a moralistic movie. This is definitely a movie in which end character, uh, leaves her husband for a charming, uh, um, what's the word i'm a con artist and drug addict and becomes a drug addict and then pays uh pays the price for it and and her her friends even her like uh you know Joan Blondell is the more you know she's the actress and she's the one who's the scandal whatever but she becomes the uh uh she has the other uh arc she becomes the model uh the model housewife or, or whatever so it definitely doesn't have the uh it it has more of the moralizing that we would come to expect from the Joseph Breen years of the of the Hays code but um you know Mervyn LeRoy's made a lot of good movies uh he he knows what he's what he's doing here sequence to sequence uh the movie is is well done you've got big stars shining um and stars to be uh uh shining so um definitely recommended but uh i i got to keep talking and we've been going so long that i feel like I want to burn through some of these so we're on to my the the freshest movie for me of the festival 1957 a whole uh the uh, 60 i'm not going to do the i can't do the math but um uh and the only movie i saw at this festival that was entirely in color <laughs> that's a tease for uh later on on, on saturday but uh three seven is the Tall T. I forget to I forgot to look up who directed the Tall T. But it's based on Bud Bedeker. Oh, it is Bud. It's Bud Bettiker. Yes. Um, and I have seen Bud Bedeker movies uh, before, so I should have ca- uh, caught that. But uh, it's also Randolph Scott, which makes this, as long as we're keeping uh, trends in mind, the second TCM fest in a row in which I've watched a color western starring Randolph Scott. Because last week, last year, we talked about ride the high, ride the high country
2: uh i think tall i don't think is, there's any we keeping track of trends i think it's just you it's just me yeah. um
1: uh i really liked the tall t um more than i ride the high country for what it's worth um but uh uh this but it was weirdly uh, like one of the maybe the least attended movie i saw at the festival i'm not sure why like maybe randolph scott's not a big enough draw or, or or whatever but um
0: they were all mad at him from in cocktail hour when he said that he <laughs> can't have careers right
1: right that's what so. it was um but I, or I don't know if it was just like midday saturday people were just like you know taking a, a break because even like you expect yeah. like i talked about people i actors i don't recognize showing up and everyone breaking into applause but in this movie henry silva shows up as the heavy and I was like, oh, and like no one, no one, no one applauded. I think people were just like tired and, <laughs> and, and taking they were using the tall tee to take a little, uh, nap. But I think
4: it was I, just, I think it just ended up being opposite a lot of other things that were like yeah, higher, right. higher profile.
1: Um, but, uh, yeah, this is, it, it definitely, knowing that it's Elmore Leonard, you, you, you feel that in, in which it, like the, the characters who are bad guys aren't doing bad things just because the plot requires them to they're like they're self-interested evil, like villains who are willing to be small and petty and do not care a fig about the life of anyone other than themselves, especially if they're standing in the way of them getting the money they, they want to get. So, uh, basically, uh, Randolph Scott ends up on a, uh, stagecoach that's not the stagecoach and he, he um, that, that's supposed to come through. So the bad guys are waiting for the other stagecoach and they end up with this crew of like four people th- well very quickly three people uh, spoiler um, it starts as four and then there's uh, three people and they're just like holding on to them until they can uh, or really they're going to kill them immediately and wait for the other the, other, the actual stagecoach that has the money but then they get talked into uh uh keeping them as 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 hostages. And it's just like the movie is 78 minutes and there is almost no point in the movie in which Rand- Randolph Scott and I, I can't remember who's the the, the female lead. Um, oh Marino Sullivan. Um Randolph Scott and Marino Sullivan are always like thirty seconds away from getting shot at every point in this movie. And so it has this the, this uh ongoing tension of like how are they going to keep themselves alive in a way that isn't that doesn't sacrifice their humanity because there is another guy who is willing to to do things to keep himself alive that are that are less ethical but like it's Randolph Scott and Maureen Sullivan saying can we remain good people and remain alive through this afternoon (laughs) uh yeah so it's a, a a tense uh quick little um, uh, Western thriller and uh, yeah I should call it Henry Silva again because he is a nasty piece of work in in this movie Um, there's also the first henchman who gets it dies in a way that is brutal but it is you know just off literally just off screen Uh, and there's a reason like after he dies you never see his You see his dead body. You never see his face again because uh, it is implied he no longer has a face. (laughs) Uh, All right. I think we're uh, moving on then. Um, Uh, This is everyone but me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We we teamed. Well, okay. Full disclosure. So we did not watch this at the festival. Kyle did. And then we caught up with it later at home. Um, It's actually on Canopy. Um, if you Google it and you're like, where is it streaming? It looks like it's nowhere, but there's a really good print on canopy, but probably not as good as the 35 millimeter print you saw Kyle, right?
4: Yeah. This was one that we were, uh, not sure we were going to make because of when the flame and the arrow got out and it was, you know, at a different theater and stuff like that. And we just happened to be able to get in and they were only giving out the like eighties or whatever, which was like fine. So we sat in the very front row of the four to watch a man called Adam uh, directed by Leo Penn, father of Sean um, and Chris um, and starring uh, <laughs> uh, Sammy Davis Jr. It's, a, it's about a, it's, it, who plays a jazz trumpeter. It's really more of a cornet um, and uh, who is self-destructive, sort of in the vein, I think, of um, uh, Miles Davis was the implication. And it's kind of just about a guy who is big in the jazz world, who kind of has to realize that he's gonna get older, he's gonna be less relevant, and he's just kind of drinking himself to or or seems content to drink himself to oblivion. And then he meets uh Cecily Tyson's character, who is a young um uh you know uh, civil rights activist who kind of for whatever for seemingly no reason honestly because he's not nice to her and he's sort of like way too grabby way too fast um and it, it, everybody sort of went oh gee and there was a woman behind me who kept going what is he doing like behind me, <laughs> because he's just like real handsy with her but anyway she loves she sees something in him that that he kind of forgot and tries to bring that out of him and the world seems intent on making his he- him not be able to like live his happy life. Uh it's it's not a particularly happy movie, but it is uh it's incredibly well directed by Penn and a really strange I think I was telling you before you actually saw it, but like it feels like jazz a little bit. Like it's just kind of the pacing's weird, like the the scene to scene stuff is really strange. Um, but not in a bad way necessarily. But it's also got Louis Armstrong in it, playing an an older version of that who's like sort of a novelty now for the young jazz crowd aussie davis is in it um frank sinatra jr is in it playing the kind of like young um protege to sammy davis jr's character and uh, mel torme shows up and plays mel torme literally he's the one as himself in the movie Um,
0: apparently morgan freeman's an extra oh really really? floating around somewhere yeah
4: Um, I thought this movie was really fascinating. This is the one I kind of knew the least about. The only reason that I went to go see it is because, you know, in the pre show, um, montage of stuff that they show at the beginning of every, uh, you know, before the movie starts, uh, they just showed little clips of this movie. And I was just like, you know, that looks interesting to me. So I'm going to go see it. And I was really happy I did. And, uh, Donald Bogle, uh, did the intro for it and was really fascinating, um, uh, we also saw there was a, they showed a three minute soundy, which was sort of like pre, pre, pre music video. Um, and it was of the, uh, Louis Armstrong song shine, but they also had a print of that. So they showed it beforehand. Um, and it was, you know, pretty interesting, but, um, yeah, I don't know what you
2: guys thought. I, th- I thought it was first question. A, go ahead. Uh, first question. Did Donald Bogle give away the ending? He did not every introduction I've ever seen from him gave, gives away the ending (laughs) really. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it really reminded me of another Davis Lewin Davis in terms of like, just like um, 60s musician, just making his life worse and worse, despite everyone's best efforts uh, to do otherwise. Um, and I am a big fan of people making movies about people making themselves their lives worse and worse and worse and just making the wrong decisions and continuing to screw everything up. Um, and this absolutely delivered. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I, um, I think it's it might be Sammy Davis Jr.'s only like actual leading role in a motion picture, Mm -hmm. um, which is terrible. Like he is honestly like one of the most talented performers of the 20th century. And because of racism and because of the fact he's like five two and has a glass (laughs) eye, um, he did not have the film career he should have. So honestly, like pause this episode and look up clips of him on YouTube, because like, he like he could sing, he could dance, he could act. He could do impressions. Like there are just clips of his his concerts where he just does impressions of everyone. His Dean Martin is so funny. Um so it's I was had wanted to see this for a while because I'm such a fan of his. Um I kind of feel like as strictly as a movie, like as a piece of narrative cinema, it did not totally work for me. Yeah. However, As a vehicle of just like all the people you mentioned, just like hanging out and being cool as hell. Yes, it delivered. Like they're all just smoking, and like he calls everybody baby, regardless of age or gender, which I really love. (laughs) Um, and yeah, the cinematography is crazy, like the camera's always moving around. You get like these weird POV shots of different things. Um, it is very all over the place. But for that being said, like I think it did touch on racism in an interesting way. Like, I feel like a lot of movies of the era and of earlier eras when they talk about racism they're just like there's one guy they're like that's racist joe and like the their movie <laughs> or like their arc is about their fights with racist joe and like that's it um but this really talks about it as like a systemic problem um and how it has shaped his life and how he's been on tour in the south and how that went horribly for him and how really the inherited trauma of racism and how it affects people of color which i feel like you know, is maybe, a, this was 1966, so maybe just starting to get into that being more of a thing. Um, there's a scene where a promoter asks him to do a tour of the South, and he is not into that idea. And he completely goes berserk. That's a very wild scene. Um, but yeah, it kind of reminded me of um, the man with the golden arm also, which like his buddy Frank Sinatra was in, um, but with less narrative cohesion. Um, but yeah, it has Frank Sinatra Jr. in this, which is weird because he looks just like his dad. It's kind of terrifying. So yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think it's more of like a time capsule, but it's just, it's a real vibe. And I'm just like yeah. enough of a Sammy fan that.
2: Yeah, I thought, I mean, I don't know. I thought it completely worked. Um, on like the race angle, I also thought it was awesome that they got into like how different experiences were for black people in the mid sixties of like, there's the the woman he falls in love with. She's an activist in the South. And when she comes up, there's, plenty of other people other black people she meets who like make fun of her for that and are like giving her a hard time for like oh you just sit on like a stools and sit in cafes and just try to stay there and she's like yeah that's really important actually and like there's this whole like vast cultural divide within a community that i think especially in a lot of depictions in the 60s is kind of reduced to like this is one thing and there's Mm -hmm. all these kind of varied opinions about the time in which they're living and
4: even in the very very first scene when it like he, he could not be a, a bigger deal in the, the opening kind of like concert scene. There's one belligerent drunk white guy yeah. who just who's just like, play something upbeat or whatever. And he just is like, even here, I can't like get any respect. It, if, it's a really like, it's a powerful performance. I think from Sammy Davis studio, or like it's, it's like Julie was saying absolutely a crime that he wasn't like a, a huge yeah. actor um, because he, he's so good in this. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it's great. It was, it was like my biggest surprise of the entire fest and I thought it was wonderful.
2: Totally. Uh, Next is Scott and Julie joint, a a very different vibe, but another vibe that I always get on board with is just like doomed, but uh, captivated romantic pairs. Um, Somewhere in time from uh, 1980, uh, Christopher Reeve um, plays a guy who becomes fixated on a woman of the past and finds cause to re- believe he should be able to go into the past to, uh, be united with her. Um, very kind of French premise. It reminded me of a lot of Alain Renee movies in a lot of ways, most especially last year at Marion bad, because when he gets to the past, she's this actress who has this kind of like domineering figure played by Christopher Plummer, um, who's kind of like overseeing her every move and is probably in love with her too. And the two of them are just drawn together by something way outside of themselves. And there's this whole vibe about like, um, what trying to say just like an inevitable quality to their romance and the, like the fact that they're drawn together even before it becomes a kind of like doomed romance feels just doomed by the fact of they're being separated in time and by just the tone in which it's presented it's really interestingly directed film um it really at once satisfies the romantic yearnings of the audience while kind of casting an eye and being like this is slightly screwed up in a way um and I mean, I I love Christopher Reeve all over. And I think anyone who's seen him beyond Superman recognizes that, I mean, Superman's plenty of evidence on its own, but that just how fantastic and dynamic an actor he was. And this is prime evidence of that.
0: Yeah. um, I just want to talk a little bit about the intro. because Jane Seymour plays the woman and she gave the intro, which is really great. And she said she and Christopher Reeve fell in love in real life while they were filming this movie. So she's like, what you see on screen like that is real love happening. Um, It abruptly ended because he suddenly discovered his ex-girlfriend was pregnant. Oops. So then it was over. Um, But they... They filmed on this island. I think it's Mackinac Island or something. Yeah, which I've been
2: to. I have family up in Michigan. Oh, so. Okay. Uh, Mackinac.
0: So yeah, they it, to this day, they don't allow cars on the island. They have like this really old hotel and it's all very quaint. And this movie became such a cult hit. It was such like a sleeper hit with word of mouth that now they have like a, an annual event there to like commemorate it. And it's like just become this whole thing. Um, she convinced John Barry to do the score. It's like this beautiful sweeping, sweeping score for back-end residuals only. And he got super rich off it. Cause it like became such a hit. Um, the costume designer apparently went three times over budget and got fired, but was nominated for an Oscar. Costumes are gorgeous. Um, yeah, the, the beginning kind of reminded me of Laura because sure. he's falling in love with this, um, photograph. Yeah. Um, and so he's in 1979, and she's in 1912. So he's like falling in love with this photograph, and he becomes interested in time travel. By the way, probably the most lo-fi time travel I know, I've ever I love seen. It. No, that's I, what's so great about that's it. That's what I, I like it too. But he, you just have to think really hard.
4: Yeah, I like the way you put that. He becomes interested in time travel. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, he gets I, into I, it. I, I've become interested in gardening. Ooh.
0: Yeah. But he it's it's just you have to lie there and think really hard and not have anything from the present in the room or something and just think really hard. And then you do it. So it works. Spoiler alert. Um, I do think it kind of it takes a long time for them to like meet, which I think is part of the point in that their time together is so short. But at the same time, it was a little hard for me to get invested in it just because it took so long to get there that I feel like it almost cut into the time they spent together. Um, But yeah, Christopher Reeve really just fantastic. Like I, I really, there has never been anyone like him that I can think of in just how genuine and earnest and pure he was. Um, and just watching him, it's like, there's no, there's nothing between you and him. Like it's a pure connection. Um, and I, he's just really fantastic. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, it didn't like a hundred percent work for me, but I, I could, I could get swept up in it and he kind of carried it for me
1: all right um moving on to more pre code on thirty five millimeters <laughs> uh william wyler's nineteen thirty my second william wyler of the festival william wyler's uh nineteen thirty three counselor at law um which uh very frustratingly to everyone spell check counselor spells with two l's for some reason uh, oh, wow. <laughs> but uh before we get to that i will say this is the screening in which they gave out the robert osborne award this year which was uh, awarded to leonard moulton and awarded to leonard moulton by warren Beatty. um so this was a it was a very long time before the movie actually uh started which like i'm torn between like oh this is fun that i'm getting to see this i love Leonard malton he's he's a ton of fun and being like i better not miss portrait of jenny because of this uh <laughs> which i didn't it was fine i had plenty of time uh this was at the american legion the hollywood legion rather um theater which we hadn't really talked about i guess we talked about it probably three years ago when they because that was the first year yeah. that they that they they did it and this is the um uh, I didn't go to any movies that year. I have since been to I went to like a for your consideration screening of Flea um uh this past uh, <laughs> uh award season at um at the Hollywood Legion. But this is my first time uh being there for the the fest they had better concessions. I know this is not the, I mean better concessions at the Hollywood Legion than at the actual Chinese Six, which is kind of uh frustrating. <laughs> There's like your options like dire, yeah. Even if you like, oh, I don't have time to get something out in the mall or whatever. Well, I can go to the concession stand. Look, I got nothing. You want a stale ass hot dog? Anyway, that's not the point. The point is Hollywood Legion has like sandwiches from Republic and like, <laughs> canned cocktails. Like it's a nice concession stand. I got a bunch of free shit from HBO Max. Not to like, yeah, you know, we're not chilling for them, but I got like some uh pretzel rods dipped in like purple fondant and sprinkles. It was really delici- delicious. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, I saw Larry Moulton do the whole thing, and then he, like, he weirdly, he, like, gave his whole speech about the Robert Osborne Award, and then, like, left the stage, and then people were, like, giving him a standing ovation, and he came back, and he was like, oh, right, I forgot I'm supposed to introduce this movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> it had that, that real energy of, like, saying goodbye to someone at a party and then seeing them again in the stairwell or whatever. Um, anyway, Counselor of Law, William Wyler, John Barrymore, B.B. Daniels from Cocktail Hour, uh, Vincent Sherman, the director, uh, is an actor mm. in in this movie and has a great uh, monologue. Uh, this is my favorite movie of the festival. Mm. Um, it's uh, have either of you seen it? Because I know they've shown it at past TCM Fest.
2: We watched it at home some time long enough ago that I don't have distinct memories of it. Yeah.
1: So uh, John Barrymore plays a, a, a first generation immigrant. We don't like it's not specified what sort of old country he's he's from but a place that is you know thought talked about in the terms of like the old country his mother is you know still very like has a thick accent and and, and stuff but he's made it as a, a a big city lawyer uh but he's made his name uh on sort of scandalous cases you, you know not uh, respectable lawyering he's hiring you know women who murdered their husbands and or, or re- representing women who murdered their husbands and 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 uh uh, communist activists that's vincent sherman's character and, and and stuff like that um and he but he has married this sort of what you I, I guess what you might consider like a trophy wife like a society woman who's 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 wealthy and he's married him but the thing is he really truly loves her she clearly just likes the money um that that he that, that he has and and um uh uh but the the movie ha- has uh, i don't know if it is based on a play it, it's, it has that play type thing of like it all takes place in his law offices um but uh it reminded me or rather i should say you know chronologically this movie reminded me of Consulate law uh uncut gems in the sense that it they're both movies that there's
0: like, a parallel no one has ever drawn
1: <laughs> but i i honestly i think Maybe because you saw it before you saw Uncut Gems. If you saw Uncut Gems and then you watched this, I think you would make the connection because it is similarly a movie about a guy constantly paddling to keep his head above water and not to have the the uh, the ceiling fall down on him. Because the, the main thing is that uh, he, at some earlier case, he had worked with his client to manufacture an alibi that wasn't real and get someone to testify and this might come out and might ruin everything that he's 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 built um but it's not a purely selfish thing there's also this thing of him like being you know coming from nothing and and wanting to 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 help people like he is there is an implication that he is Got into the lawyering game for the right reasons, but then there are also people from his old neighborhood who accuse him of being a sellout. And 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 moving on, so like there's this tension between like, uh, uh is he representing for his background and and or is he uh, uh, abandoning it? And all of these uh, pressures are coming down. Meanwhile, he's trying to get his wife, that whom he loves, to pay him a bit of attention. Uh, when she's uh. Pretty clearly having an affair with uh, uh, Marvin Douglas's character, uh, but meanwhile, his own secretary, played by B, played B.B. Daniels, um, is clearly in love with him in a way that he is completely oblivious to, uh, and doesn't have time to uh, to be aware of it because he is like like that uncut gems, just shark, like always in motion, always for motion type of thing. And uh, William Wyler directs the hell out of it, stages the hell out of it. The, the art deco like fancy law office set it, it, I'm not like there's no uh, uh bemoaning the fact that it all takes place in three room or two rooms in a an elevator bank because they're beautiful sets uh and and uh William might just keeping everything uh going and then I also want to call it an actress I'd never heard of her before I don't know if I've ever seen her in anything else um but uh uh, so I I I incorrectly refer to Big Daniels as a receptionist. She's a secretary. The actual receptionist who actually answers the phone is put by Isabel Jewell and is the it is she is so great because she's got this like thick New York accent, but she's also like Sing Song answering the phones. Simon and Tedeschi, how are you? But she's also while she's it's it's a high level of difficulty performance because she is constantly talking. To multiple people at once she's talking to multiple people who are calling on the lines but then also on one line she's carrying on the personal conversation with a friend while she's also like flirting with the clerk in the office and like it's uh, a, a great performance and like like there's a constant there's a running joke of her like complaining that her stomach hurts but then also like sending the the boy out for like milkshakes and pastrami sandwiches and shit <laughs> um that movie is just so fun and so lively but also so tense uh and and completely devoid of any uh lull at at any point in in all of this and all in the breast it's like 84 minutes or something which is why i was able to make it to portrait of jenny by the way despite Warren Beatty and leonard malton rambling on Uh, (laughs) um but uh yeah favorite movie of the festival favorite new discovery i knew i was a william wyler fan but uh uh, he's even ri- risen even in my estimation. Now that I've seen counselor with two L's at law. Uh,
2: I, I was watching another Warren Beatty movie. not that you were watching Warren Beatty movie. I was experiencing Warren Beatty, uh, at the same time as you, um, watching his 1978 film, heaven can wait, his directorial debut, um, alongside Buck Henry co-directed the film co-written by Warren Beatty and Elaine May. Um, just as funny as the trio would suggest, um, Beatty is one of those actors who I I increasingly can't get enough of and who is such an inventive and very funny performer, but who can somehow still weave that into kind of like dramatic performance without really abandoning either end of it. You know, the, the Heaven Can Wait ends on a very sweet note and has like a consistent romance running through it. But throughout the film, it's just like nonstop gags and. Warren Beatty being a huge goofball. It's um, a remake of Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Um, And as in that film, uh, Beatty plays a uh, athlete. Here he's a football star who um, dies, but before his time. And so Heaven screws up and accidentally takes him um, before he is properly dead Uh, The comment that his football reflexes would have kept him alive past the accident, um, which is a great little detail. And so um, his body's been cremated and heaven doesn't know what to do with them. So they pitch him a series of bodies in which he could be inhabit a series of people who are near death themselves and, will very shortly have their bodies unattended to so um Beatty can just take whatever, whatever he wants and he, he gets picky about it there's a funny series of gags just them watching people die and he's like eh, I don't think that guy's for me because um, he wants to be in another like football ready body because he wants to play the Super Bowl that's I love simple goals in movies where people just have one stupid goal they want to do and all he wants to do in the whole movie is play in the Super Bowl and the entire movie is essentially about a series of hurdles he has to overcome in which he and. Ha- to eventually play in that Super Bowl. Um, so he eventually ends up inhabiting the body of this very ostentatiously rich guy. Um, and he decides that one, he likes being ostentatiously rich, and two, um, finds a lot that he can do in that. And Beatty kind of clearly gets off on his kind of social justice warrior angle of like what he could be doing if he turned the country around and what someone with that kind of wealth and power and uh, as a captain of industry could be doing to better the world. Um, But does it in a series of way that uh, still includes some great gags. You know, there's this big boardroom scene where he he really gets to let it all hang out. Um, But it starts with a reporter asking, like, is it true that uh, this nuclear power plant you have could destroy the whole East or West Coast or whatever? And uh, Charles Grodin comes in. and He's like, it depends on how you define destroy, (laughs) which is a great line for a guy like Charles Grodin to get to deliver. Um, So, yeah, in addition to Beatty and Grodin, it's got Buck Henry in a small role, Dime Cannon once again shows up um, just having the time of her life and James Mason plays the angel. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, a gas of a movie, uh, very brief, like hundred minutes, great directorial debut for Beatty to kind of show off what he can do as a director. And then he went and made reds, which is like the int- most weird two of the first two movies one could make. Um, and then Beatty was there at the screening. He gave like a very long Q and a um, and Beatty is like a Beatty character. This is the second time I've seen it at a Q&A and he's just weird and rambling and goes on tangents and talks about whatever he wants and has a very strange sense of humor and seems mostly there, but also like he's constantly thinking about his own thing during the same time. And is like kind of keeping up with the questions. And this isn't like a reflection of his age. I just think he's a weird dude, um, but it was a very engaging Q&A. And I, I was very pleased that, that uh, Ben Menkowitz touched on his love of the Apple Pan, a great LA restaurant that Beatty frequents apparently a great deal so much so that, um, Ben Mank was, like, it's a very simple restaurant. They got like burgers and tuna sandwiches and fries and that's it. And apple pie and Betty quickly chimed in. He's like, they got more kinds of pie than that. Um, so <laughs> a that, thing. yeah, it was, it was that. a very fun evening. Yeah,
0: yeah. I actually saw this at TCM fest four years ago. So did I. Um, oh yeah. So we, I think we talked about it on yeah. that
1: episode. Cause um, the, uh, Warren Betty wasn't there. Buck Henry and Diane. Buck Henry was, there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, and I got to, we got to learn about Diane Cannon's sex life with Cary Grant, which she talked about <laughs> unprompted. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what the people want.
0: Yeah. But yeah, it's a very fun movie. I forgot
2: to comment that with the houseboat. Every time there's a Cary Grant movie at TCM Fest, you definitely have the Cary Grant mom crowd of like everything <laughs> Cary Grant's doing. There's like, oh, there's falling in love. And it's very sweet. So uh, this is, uh, I, it's got your second Diane Cannon and second James Mason. I know in the same movie.
4: Uh, I have a very quick Warren Beatty story. I used to work at a bookstore, um, uh, 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 no longer there, but a theater and film bookstore. And, uh, on, I was working Christmas Eve one year, um, the first year that I lived out here and I couldn't, cause I couldn't go, uh, in order to get a cheap flight back to Colorado, I had to wait till Christmas day to fly back. So I was working on Christmas Eve, nobody had come in and then at like five minutes to close Warren Beatty walks in and we're like, my coworker and I are like, what? Like, (laughs) like this can't be real. And he just, he comes in and he's like, Hey, uh, you guys got any books about me? (laughs) (laughs) And we're, and my, and I had just started there basically. So I didn't really know, but my, my coworker had worked there a long time and he's like, "Uh, yeah, we do. And we just, he like took him over to the biographies and there was a Warren Beatty book and he's, he just is like, okay, thanks. And so my coworker comes back up to the front. We're just watching Warren Beatty look at a book about himself, <laughs> and then he kind of goes, like we could see him kind of like laugh and shake his head, and then he like puts the book down and he comes back and he's like, none of that's true, and then just leaves. <laughs> what a guy!
0: This sound real? This sounds like I a weird, like a Christmas Carol outtake. Kind
4: I mean, of. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past just somebody, some Warren Beatty impersonator, but like. <laughs>
1: It
0: was imagine truly being, something.
1: Imagine being so famous that
2: there are books about you that you don't know about.
1: <laughs> yeah, I right? know,
2: right? <laughs> and that you haven't talked looked at. <laughs> yeah. I, they talk about that at the Q&A because Ben Mank once asked him if he ever wanted to write a book about himself, just an autobiography, a memoir. And Beatty talked about how many books have been written about him. He was like, yeah, you just read all this stuff that's just like, not true and you could spend all your time debunking it. But what's the point? <laughs> well, so he was doing research. Yeah, he was doing research. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. All right, let's
1: let's move on because this episode is very long.
0: uh, So, yeah, so something still not quite the same, but a bit fantastical. Um, Kyle and I saw 1953's Invaders from Mars, um, which has, as promised, Invaders from Mars. Um, This is like a kooky little low budget gem. It's like this 80 minute movie. Um, It was a brand new digital restoration um, it's in color. It looked amazing. Um, it has elements in common with both War of the Worlds and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it predated both of them. Um, it's directed by William Cameron Menzies, who is also known for, like, being a production designer. And the production design of this movie is outstanding. Like, he knew how to milk a dollar, for sure. Um, it's sort of divided into two parts. The first part is that a spaceship lands, but, and I don't know that I've seen this in other movies. it just immediately burrows straight into the ground and is hidden So then people keep walking up to it, not knowing it's there. And it like sucks them down and then they come out and they act weird. So like for the first half of you don't see anything that's going on with that. You just see that people walk over this hill, which is this beautiful scenic design. They come back, they have a little scar on their neck and they're acting weird. And this is how you make a sci-fi movie with no money. It's it's like it's not hard to put a little scar on people, but it's like, you can blow things up all day long, but all you have to do is put the scar on their neck and they act weird. And that's so scary. It's so scary. And it's from a kid's perspective. So it's this little moppety kid. And suddenly he doesn't know what adults he can trust because he clearly like is trying to solve this issue and like goes to the police. He sees the scar on their neck and then he like his, they get his parents and they get his tea. And it's like, it's surrounding everyone. Um, and then in the second half, he finds people who believe him. And then it kind of like escalates up through the military. Um, they finally go down into the spaceship and like, that shit's wild, man. Like the scenic design is really cool, but the aliens are not great. I was like, Ooh, we kind of blew our lead here because <laughs> they're just in green body suits and you can see the zipper all the way down their back. Um and it's like, on the one hand, I, I do think it, it was the right choice to go down into the spaceship and show all that. But it's like, oh, we could have workshopped this maybe like five minutes longer.
4: Yeah, I um, think in those are the mutants. The actual sorry, alien is, yeah, is they a head pronounced
0: in the- mutant
4: in the <laughs> movie. Um, but the the actors who play them are really weird they do a lot of weird like physical movements and then anytime the military is standing next to them it's little kids or, or little people playing the military so that they look enormous which is really great like
0: yeah uh, that, they also again, walk backwards so that you can't see the zippers on their back more than necessary. Yeah. i noticed um, yeah. there's it's, a lot it's, of them walking backwards
4: it's a little hokey that's but just it's also mutants really, walk that's, that's just true. how mutants yeah Um, but the actual alien, the one Martian you actually see is a head in a jar with tentacles, not even a jar, like a globe kind of thing. It doesn't talk. It just kind of like looks around really menacingly and stuff like that. It's the, the escalation of human or uh, of like, uh, life, like intelligence. It's like, it's, it's beyond physical manifestation. Like it's, it's super well done. And then it ends in a really weird way. Um, yeah uh i'd seen this years and years ago when i was first getting into like um you know 50 sci-fi movies i was kind of just like what are the best ones and and this one i didn't really like it at the time but i was just like hey it's a new restoration john sales is going to introduce it i was like super jazzed about that it looks great it's a lot better than i remember it um maybe my tastes have just become more refined and i i'm okay with some hokier elements but yeah it was really good however uh, they they handed out little flyers for it because the, the company that restored it wants you to buy it on Blu-ray and uh, on 4K, which I think is reasonable. But I went to the website today because I was like, I wouldn't mind ordering that. Uh, it's $67. Dang. I'm not. No, get out of here. I'm not spending $67. It's and like the extras aren't even that good.
0: Mistake that can't it, be right
4: yeah the the 4k is 67 dollars, and the just the regular blu-ray is like 55 or something like that does
0: it's, it come with a spaceship no does it Come with an alien <laughs>
4: and it, yeah, it doesn't have a commentary it. track it and has one it has one interview with the kid who is now a million years old <laughs> um,
0: yeah and, they actually remade this in 1986 and the actor who played the kid in the first one plays the police chief in the second one yeah um I don't know anything about the 80s one, but I, I almost feel like if you made this with money, it wouldn't be as good. <laughs> well,
4: Toby Hooper directed it. And I will say that that it was a canon movie. So it's not really with money.
0: Uh, well, okay. um, fair enough.
4: And it's 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 kind of a loving homage to the old one. Like, it's very faithful in a lot of ways. But it also does that 80s thing where it's like, like, for example, uh, in in the 50s one, his teacher or, or the doctor, excuse me, the doctor who is. The one person or the first person who really believes him,
0: the child psychologist, the child
4: psychologist Uh, in the new, the newer one, it's Karen black. And she does in fact, get her mind taken over and then you just go, no, and, and, and way more of the town gets taken over too. And the actual, the mutants that you see are really big puppets, which are kind of impressive, but it's like, you kind of don't need that. It like, it loses a lot of the, the charm, I think
0: yeah uh, but it, yeah i think it you know I, I think there's kind of like sometimes you see low like low budget sci-fi movies from the 50s and it's a very like mystery science theater of like you're kind of looking down on it but i thought this actually like delivered yeah and yeah it's a good time
4: yeah it was good just i'm not buying that blu-ray i'll tell you that no. much
1: <laughs> okay uh i'll close out saturday night with my second william beaterly film of the festival uh also on 35 millimeter 1948's portrait of jenny this is the movie I was hinting at earlier when I said that Tall T was the only entirely in color movie uh, I, I saw. Portrait of Jenny is mostly black and white until the very end. But also l- you guys, listeners brace yourselves for some of the insightful commentary and analysis you come to expect from Battleship Retention.
2: What a weird movie. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds super cool. I was kind of bummed it, I missed it.
1: It's very good. And it's also like, it was perfect to see like how you were talking about uh the friday night movie this was my last movie in a day of like seeing five movies i also as i mentioned like grabbed a drink at the bar beforehand this movie like there is a part of me that is like half convinced that i actually fell asleep and dreamed fortune of jenny because it, (laughs) it has that sort of that that disconnected dreamy floating tone to it joseph cotton plays um uh uh, a struggling painter in New York City who, while one day walking through the park in 1948, which, or at least you know that's when the movie came out, in the then present day, uh, meets a little girl played by Jennifer Jones, um, who was almost 30 in her life. So touches of uh, Aileen there, if you've uh, kept up with, uh, you know the the Celine Dion biopic with the woman who plays Celine Dion at every age. So you've got. Jennifer Jones playing essentially like a, a I don't know, if she's supposed to be like eleven or twelve or something, uh, in this first scene, and they like uh, have this conversation, and she leaves something behind, and, and, and then she's but she's talking about things that Joseph Cotton then realizes, like wait, that happened thirty years ago or, or whatever, and then he keeps running into her in the park, but every time he runs into her, she's a few year, years old, older, and her references seem to be uh, a little more recent, but you know in with her her age and and so she's uh but but ever since he met her he has started painting this beautiful portrait of jenny uh her name's jenny um <laughs> uh and so you've got this other people i'm trying to remember who uh there's a notable actress in the movie who plays the art uh gallery owner slash agent um I'm trying to remember who is it Ethel Barrymore. It is Ethel Ethel, Ethel Barrymore. I saw a lot of Barrymores because um, of John Barrymore, Ethel Barrymore, and I've got a Lionel Barrymore coming up. Uh, anyway, um, spoilers. Yeah, yeah. She uh, she doesn't see Jenny. So you've got Jessica Cotton is like communicating with a a ghost from the past, and then trying to figure out like learning about her life so that he can try and figure out where to meet her. Um, and it takes him to a convent and to. Uh, eventually out to Cape Cod on the night of a hurricane. And this is where we get, you know, the whole movie is black and white. Obviously it's 1948, so it's 137, you know, to one or whatever. And then suddenly there is a bright green lightning strike and the camera, the, 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 the screen goes wide. Like, I mean, like 185 wide. I looked up, Selznick claimed that he wanted it and that he prepared it to go like, four to one like napoleon style like wide wide like along the walls almost for the uh the um hurricane sequence which is tinted it's not color film it looks like watching an old black and white movie that's tinted it's tinted green and then red and then at the end of the movie when you actually get the final reveal of the portrait of jenny it's in technicolor um and uh, uh uh you know apparently the movie like completely destroyed David O'Selznick's production company. He spent all his money on it. It was a complete flop. Uh, and I kinda understand why. I don't I mean it's so it, it's so weird. It's very slow in a way that I think works because it like I said, it has that floaty dreamlike uh, atmosphere uh to it. There's a lot of like you might say pretentious narration. I would say, you know, flowery purple narration uh but um yeah again what a weird movie uh i'm so glad it exists i'm so glad i was able to see it um on film uh in in the theater i'm so glad i stayed awake uh but uh yeah definitely i don't know check it out (laughs) try to try to recreate this situation uh of like watch it late at night after you're very tired and have had a couple uh, a couple of drinks i think that's the time to see it also this is when i was like rushing because the the Robert Osmore thing had gone so long I was rushing from the Hollywood Legion to get to to this theater because I was like oh shit it's gonna I'm gonna get there like half an hour before it starts they're all gonna have already given out the like cue cards it's in the smallest theater it's on film it's probably gonna be a hot ticket no this is like plenty of empty seats at, at Portrait of Jenny I have such a bad handle on what the TCM audience
0: the 9pm slot it thins out it does cool. thin oh. out okay People get because
1: right let me tell you, I, cause I, yeah, I got my cue card. People who haven't attended the festival won't really understand this, but I was even being as late as I was, I was like 29th in line <laughs> for, for portrait of Jenny. Whereas I'll, I'll jump to I'm kicking off Sunday morning, Sunday morning, apparently the hottest ticket uh based on how far back I was in the line for, for after the thin man, I was 191st in line. Dang. Um, uh got in uh, you know I ended up having to sit almost against the wall but i uh, uh got it but that's like i showed up almost an hour beforehand like and i it was the closest i came to 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 not being able to get in because i guess i mean this is my second uh william paul movie of the the festival it's the second thin man movie i'd only ever seen the thin man i know there's more i have more to see now but um uh yeah after the thin man is um i don't know we, we've been going so long i can't talk too long about it but it's uh uh sort of more of the 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 same from the thin man it's a funny uh mystery uh missing person the turned murder mystery um with uh, uh nick and Noral nora just sort of like being drunk and having witty. Uh, Banter and playing little tricks on each other the whole time, uh, but it's also if Portrait of Jenny was a great movie to see at the end of a long day, after The Thin Man is a great movie to see when you've only gotten a few hours of sleep the next morning because it literally picks up right after The Thin Man and for the first like forty five minutes of the movie, all Nick Charles wants to do is to get into bed and go to sleep and he can't like he, <laughs> he's he's not able to uh, so that was like a, a fitting movie to watch very early. Um, Also, uh, or or some early uh Jimmy Stewart uh, yeah, performance. Um, and he's 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 really good. I don't want to give away too much about his his character because that would give away things about the the movie, but uh, yeah, I like George Bailey. Uh, Yeah, I like that it's a lot of fun. Also, at an hour and 52 minutes, the longest movie I saw the entire festival.
2: Oh, wow, yeah, I think after the thin man is one of those great sequels where like they made the thin man as like a regular movie and then realized what everyone was responding to and just made it more like what everyone wants the thin man to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've always done yeah. it for that. Oh
0: yeah. We love it. And like Jimmy Stewart's so great because it's like, it's before his star persona was established. So he, yeah, he does different things of what his star persona becomes, but yeah, it's, it's on our movie wall somewhere. Oh yeah, somewhere. It's, it's out of frame, but yeah, we're, we're fans in this house for sure. All right.
1: What's up next?
4: Uh, uh- I went and so, so this is my last movie of the fest. Um, my friend needed to go to the airport and I kind of was like, you know what? I would like to go home and see my wife for a few bit, uh, a little while. So uh, this was my last movie, which was Waterloo road, um, which bridge. I, bridge. no Waterloo bridge. Uh, that's how long I just like, whatever, it's fine. Waterloo bridge, Waterloo road might be like a soap opera in the uk but anyway it's a um, song actually waterloo sunset is by the kings
0: i, I was going um, like more a holiday
4: road vibe <laughs> yeah that's true um <laughs> waterloo bridge uh directed by mervyn Leroy, based on a uh novel that had already been adapted one time uh pre-code this one's this one's postcode <laughs> this one's firmly in the code and uh uh it's about uh people who meet during world war one, a captain and a young ballet dancer during an air raid, they hide out together, uh, have a nice conversation and then are just sort of like quickly fixated on each other through a series of events. They fall in love, decide to get married. Things happen. They can't get married. She thinks he dies in combat, becomes a prostitute that they can't say she's a prostitute. And then he comes back and then she kind of has to just deal with, uh, shame honestly uh it was it's i mean it's built as a melodrama I, I thought it was just kind of like a a very sad romantic movie but um uh you got um speaking of sad romances uh you got vivian lee as the lead um and uh, she did not have a happy life and um uh is that robert Taylor, is that his name? Um, the guy so who's many the... like
0: tall brunette Roberts of the 40s, but totally I think the correct one. Yes,
4: yeah, and he uh is supposed to be British, but just straight up does not do a British accent, he's just American in it. Um, and uh, it's what, what I it's it's a good movie. I'm not gonna say it's not a good movie, but what I responded to mostly is that they do some really interesting things to get around the fact that they cannot say that she turns to prostitution like they through like you see like another woman walk down the street who looks kind of trashy and she's got an old guy on her arm and he and then vivian lee kind of just goes you know like and just kind of resigns herself to that and then like when she finally gets reunited with robert taylor she's wearing a kind of trashy outfit like that like it's really it's really smartly done because the pre-code version they just straight up say she's a prostitute but in this one they couldn't say that um i do think it is like very of the time for in a lot of ways um because uh it's just a lot of people not talking to each other and if you just talk to each other everything would have been fine um uh and that kind of stuff drives me nuts but it's you know it's supposed to be 19 whatever 17 or whatever so like i get it um it was on film it was a weird print every reel seemed like it was a different shade of black and white it was and like a couple of them the the tails on them were too long and so one of them it just cut to black and then there were like those couple weird like frames of other stuff that they put in there so like 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 a pinup girl and stuff like that <laughs> and then it and then they finally get it around so it was a weird print it was maybe the least the least cared for print of any of the ones that they showed but um, I enjoyed it. It was fine. It was a it was the only movie that my friend and I could agree on to see before the of the morning ones. He he for whatever reason just didn't want to see after the thin man, which is what I would have wanted to see, but that was the last one. But so I went home, but my pass did not go home. My past got to hang out <laughs> elsewhere. I left it behind. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> um. uh well now I mean, yeah, you're Kyle, you're you've exited the festival because this is the one that it's everyone but you. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Uh Robert Sodmac's Fly by Night, which uh I had on my uh I went on Wednesday before the fest officially started to the media reception. Um and they had all the TCM hosts uh and the question they asked was, What are you most uh looking forward to presenting? And Eddie Muller said. Fly by Night is uh, the thing he was most looking looking forward to because it's something he's been wanting to do for Noir Alley, I guess, for a long time. But the rights are such that he can't, they can't broadcast it on TV. But um, anyway, this is uh, my second uh, film shot by John Seitz. I forgot to say earlier that Hell, the Conquering Hero was shot by John Seitz. So <laughs> keeping track of these, uh, <laughs> of these things. But uh, why don't you guys talk a little bit about Fly by Night? Yeah,
0: so... This is from 1942, and Eddie Muller introduced it by saying it's his favorite B-movie of all time. And like when Eddie Muller says it's his favorite B, like that is high praise. Like you don't get, that's serious. Um, And he was saying it packs so much into its running time, and it really, it's like 70 minutes or something. But there's a lot going on here. It's basically like a lower budget version of the 39 Steps. If you've seen that, it's kind of the same premise. Um, so you got, you got sexual tension between the leads. You got a massive conspiracy. You got, they steal a car off, like a big car transporter. You, they have to get married to evade the cops. Um, it also has maybe the best payoff of a MacGuffin I've ever seen. And like, that's saying something. like, you know, there are so many of these movies where they're like, Oh, we have to find the such and such device. And then like, you find it and it's just like, it's an A-bomb and you're like, okay. But like, you are not, you do not. You cannot predict what this MacGuffin is like I my it melted my brain. I was like, that is fucking bananas. Um yeah, so that that was wild um this was the only thing i saw in film which was kind of a bummer like i the first like day of the festival i'm like i'm not a format snob whatever that's for perverts but then like
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know y- y'all in your cell but then like after a couple of days i'm like you know what i could really go for i could really go for a little flicker you know what i could really i could really do a little flicker yeah, but yeah. it's I-, I regret
1: the way Julie, the, the amount that your husband has worn off on me on, on that, on this topic. Yes.
0: (laughs) I know, me too. It's the osmosis. It's horrible. But while
2: you get exposed to enough digital projection. it's just all the same. The prints, it's always different.
0: Yeah, but they have cut back because they used to show more film. I think it's just become harder to get prints. I think they've cut down on the venues that. Yeah, not having
2: the Egyptians. Um, Also, I mean, half
1: half of the I saw 12 movies, six of them were on film. So that's how much uh, this has worn off on me.
0: Yeah, Yeah, but they were also, a lot of them were in the four, which if you don't have a pass, it's really hard to get into because it's such a small venue. But yeah, this was a really fun time. It was really wild. um, And yeah. I know,
2: I I feel like I don't have much to add to it because it was just, and partially because you get into spoilers pretty fast, but also like, it's just a total gas of a plot, just a pure engine of mood and atmosphere and wrong turns and all this great stuff. And And very funny. Yeah, Yeah, very funny.
1: It keeps having surprises i think the yeah. part where like uh there's there's a part where you mentioned them having having to get married to avoid the cops they end up at like a justice of the Peace's house and we keep realizing like oh this is a whole business that he does and yeah. like he there's a like he opens the curtain and they have a whole like w- like wedding like uh, arch like built in there's uh, uh jokes there there's also um uh I, I don't know if this is where the writers of Ace Ventura got the idea, but like per, like pretending to be like insane and have yourself committed to a, uh, oh, yeah. a mental institution to, to, to get some info. Which involves
2: a great payoff of a prop that seemed like completely disposable when they're introduced at the wedding venue, but which they utilize in the committing yourself to an insane asylum to fantastic degree. Uh, wait, which? A box of rings.
1: Oh, right yeah that's right <laughs> uh all right um so yeah highly recommended and then moving on oh my last film of the festival and this is the big i this is the big like uh filling in a an embarrassing blind spot uh for me so my last film of the festival was um john houston's key largo my third bogart and my third max steiner score um both of them doing a lot of great work it is a it's a great score and it kind of has to be in a movie like a a, that is almost entirely a single location movie um uh, there's the beginning on the bus and there's the end on a on a boat but it's uh most just in this empty hotel with uh uh humphrey bogart um the hotel operators, Lana, Lana Barrymore and Lauren Bacall, and then a bunch of gangsters and uh, their mall, I guess, is the gangster term for what Claire Trevor is. But uh G. Robinson plays uh, uh, head gangster. And uh, yeah, there's just um, a great, it's a great example of um, single location filmma- filmmaking because uh, uh, of the various Rooms, but also the lack of room, and in, in, in the way that the uh, uh, tensions bounce off one character to another, and then it all gets ratcheted up when there's a hurricane coming in, and you've got that uh, 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 building over time from strong winds to like then the like the uh, ceiling fans that are hanging from the ceiling start like swaying, and then eventually you've got you know like trees coming into the window and, and and stuff, and it and it just uh, uh the yeah the way that 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 is used to ratchet up tension but also the way that performers are um ratcheting up the the tension uh it's a super engaging sit um glad i saw it, it was at the hollywood legion it was also on film uh and then uh i went home
2: Uh, we also went home after, um, fly by night, but, um, we'd gotten in line for evenings for sale, which is, uh, you know, kind of build as a little saucy pre-code gem. Um, but we're unexpectedly shut out. We're like probably seven away from the front of the line and, uh, didn't quite make it in. So I I did what any enterprising cinephile did and went home and downloaded it from a enterprising cinephile, uh, torrent site that has all kinds of rare movies that aren't on DVD or streaming. Um, and watch it at home. Um, it's it's decent. You know, I could see how it'd play better with the crowd, although maybe not the TCM crowd, which loves to titter over any naughty thing in a pre-code movie. Um, this is about uh, a former count who's on the verge of suicide when um, he gets an offer to become a gigolo um, in, in the parlance of the times.
3: Titter, titter, titter.
2: <laughs> uh Jigolo was more like uh positive like a dan- a hall dancer so they would be available for uh middle-aged and older women to just go and uh have a pleasant evening with um you know i'm sure in real life there's plenty of taking home afterwards but there's no Im- implication of any kind of a hanky panky here is uh you know mostly good clean fun um and so that's kind of how he's making his living he meets um a young woman who he kind of forms a bond with he meets a middle-aged woman who's uh not privy to the whole gigolo scenario she comes over from america and uh just thinks she's me get genuine count and doesn't understand that she's supposed to pay for the evening and she kind of like inspires him to reconnect with himself and all this kind of stuff um i, I think it's a little bit ahead of its time in some ways it, it is very engaged in like the idea of the fading aristocracy in Europe and um, the kind of cultural transition that was happening in the run-up to World War II and really after World War I, where like the culture that had existed in Europe for centuries prior was really coming to an end. And there's these decaying castles and these people who had gotten their titles mostly through like lineage who were suddenly left to ruin. Um, and that that's all very interesting. And Herbert Marshall plays the and Herbert Marshall is always great. Um, But the film is just kind of like has a lot of dead air moments of that kind of oftentimes early sound filmmaking where it's like hadn't quite figured out how to keep the pace up. Not that it was like impossible, obviously like Ernst Lubitsch was making very lively, very fun movies during this time, including one's Herbert Marshall, this very year, but you know, not every director was Ernst Lubitsch. So there's a lot of dead air. There's a lot of big pauses. And for a a 61 minute movie to feel this slow was a, a little damning. Um, But like I said, it was interesting. It's always interesting to see the preview codes that aren't purely like sex and naughtiness that are trying to do something a little bit more ambitious for what they can get away with, um, even if they can't entirely get there.
1: All right, Julie, I think you're last.
0: All right, I'm going to take this home. So I... ended the festival by seeing seventh heaven from 1927 strangely the only silent film they showed at the festival i don't know if people just like don't want to read intertitles or what um but i feel
1: movie, bad because i usually try to fit a silent in and i didn't th- this year
0: i mean there was only the one so yeah, yeah. um it's, but it had
1: i i'm sorry i keep interrupting which oh, yeah. uh which theater was it in
0: um, so I think it was in the one. So yeah, was, that's the bigger, but it's the bigger one,
1: but um, it had live accompaniment.
0: It did. So it okay. had, um, the Mont, the Mont Alto motion picture orchestra, which is a five piece ensemble. Um, so that was really amazing. And that was a big draw for me. Um, and they also had, um, a woman doing sound effects, which was cool. Oh, so wow. I completely forgot about her until I suddenly heard a really loud honk and like jumped out of my seat. And I was like, oh, she's doing the car horn. I <laughs> forgot about her and she did a car horn and everything's fine. Um, I'm such she a had, like, for
1: live accompaniment for a silent movie.
0: Yeah, it was cool. And Definitely. she had um, because then there's like war sequences and she had like a giant drum, I think. And she was like drumming on it and it was like supposed to be like people marching. Um and there were like a few other sound effects. But like yeah, the the score was really great because you know five people, it's not a lot, but they were sometimes all playing together and it was really sweeping, but then other times it would be like just the piano for like quieter moments. Um this movie like ruined me. Like this movie stomped on my heart. I I think it's just like there's something about silent romances where like you have intertitles, sure, but like it's so elemental. Like you're distilling love down to glances and gestures and emotions. And like they have a lot of like great silent films about just like completely normal people, like just completely everyday working people falling in love. And she's like, I mean she doesn't have a job. She's just like a street urchin, I guess. And like The guy is, um, a a street washer. Um, and they just like a lot of the movies. them just falling in love and it's so beautiful and wonderful. Um, and then war happens and that's a complication. Um, and so Janet Gaynor is the lead and, um, she won the very first best actress Oscar for both this and two other movies because there were no (laughs) rules back then, but she was great in all of them. Um, She's not really talked about as being like one of the great actresses in film history because her career was mostly confined to the silent era, although she's great in the first version of Stars Born. But like, let's get her in the conversation. She is incredible. Her arc in the movie, like it's a romance, but it's also about her finding herself and she has to defend herself against an abusive sister. And just like, it's, it's so amazing. And, you know, she couldn't there was no sound. So she has to do it completely physically. So incredible. Her co-star is Charles Farrell. Um, this was their first pairing and it was so successful that they did a subsequent 11 movies together. So it was a good combo. He's like three feet taller than her. It's visually very strange, but they make it work. Um, Frank Borzegi is the director. He won the very first best director Oscar for this, um, for just this. Um, just this, Um,
1: which
0: almost seems like a letdown, but, um, yeah, Eddie Muller did the introduction and, you know, he's known as the noir guy, but obviously he has other passions. And he was super stoked about this and was talking about how Borzaghi is one of the great romanticists in cinema. Um, and for, it was kind of in the right in the era before sound. So it eventually got re-released with like a recorded score and some sound effects, but because of that, they were really the cameras were really starting to get really mobile at that time. And there's a sequence, I don't even really know how they did it. It's like a vertical dolly shot where it's following them going up like many flights of spiral stairs in an apartment. Because
2: the title, as I recall, refers to the fact that he's on the seventh floor.
0: Yeah, they're in a live in a really high apartment. So it's like a vertical dolly that's like it's I can't describe it well, but it was like really amazing. Wow. Um
1: because that's there's like That kind of shot in, like, Magnificent Ambersons, but that's, like, 15 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: But, yeah, it was just... I mean, I don't throw this word around a lot, but I can't think of another one. Ravishing. It was ravishing, and it was, like, a really great way to end the festival because, like, everyone was vibing so hard. This movie is almost 100 years old, and you had a crowd of several hundred people just getting completely lost in it, sobbing, like just completely consumed by it. And that is like, that's really what the festival is about to me, I think. And it's like, we came from all over. We're watching this hundred-year-old movie, and we're all sobbing. We have a live orchestra, and it was just like really special and a really great way to end it. So, oh.
1: yeah, this is the yeah, this is the biggest uh, FOMO that I've had this whole uh, episode. I, <laughs> I mean, really you wish. can watch I really it. I'd th- gone to that.
0: Yeah, it was great. I mean, you can watch it at home. I, I think it's still. I mean, you, I don't know where. You, no, you saw it. I saw it at at UCLA. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I still really recommend seeing it, however you can, because um, yeah, it's really great. Oh.
1: Okay, that was a great way to end uh, TCM, yeah. and a great way to end this episode that has gone on very long. Uh, I am very hungry, so uh, <laughs> uh, thank you everybody for being here. By the way, uh, oh yeah, absolutely, course. yeah, yeah. That's for throwing thank us together. Yeah. I, I barely, it. I barely saw any of you at the festival, but I know it's yeah. weird. Yeah,
0: you're kind of on your own path, but yeah.
1: Um, but uh, in the meantime, you can find uh, hopefully. Soon, you'll have I'll have some capsule-like write-ups uh, grouped about the movies that I saw that you can find at com. You can email me at David at com. You can follow me on Twitter at Pretension. Uh Check out my other podcast, The One Where I Met Your Mother, where my wife, Natalie, and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother. Usually, this week, it's an episode of Friends and an episode of Mystery Diners because <laughs> there's more... <laughs> There's more friends than I met your mother. So sometimes we have to like fill things in and any chance to talk about the greatest show in the history of television Food Network's <laughs> mystery diners we will take. So you can check that out. Uh, that'll your attention wherever you find podcasts. Uh, let's do some plugs uh, alphabetically. Kyle Anderson, where can people find you?
4: Well, increasingly fewer places because I am a uh, burnt out on most social media, you can f- follow me on Letterboxd. Actually, that would be great. Um, I could use some more followers on Letterboxd. Um, I, uh, now I need to find what my name is. Uh, this You will be very surprised. It's Kyle underscore Anderson. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> um, be very hard to find. Um, uh, and I usually, you know, I post everything that I watch there, but also like write some, you know, little capsule reviews there. And I always link to my coverage. Uh, I write for nerves.com. Uh, where applicable i always link to my coverage in Letterboxd there so if you're interested in reading some of my reviews uh of newer movies the most recent one i think was morbius which don't <laughs> don't just don't um but yes yeah, so uh that would be great follow me on letterbox
2: thanks everybody and I thank you very did, much for I just
1: appreciate it uh and then alphabetically scott nye is next
2: yeah, uh also letterbox is a solid follow because I've kind of closed off some social media stuff as well. Um and I should by the time this episode goes up have a write up for criterion cast about the whole TCM uh, uh thing. I was trying to come up with a fancy word, but I just came up with experience? thing. It's like experience. That's sure. fancier than a thing.
0: Yeah. Sure is. Ordeal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't an ordeal. Like I was coming up with that words like that. It was like yeah. that's not that, that makes them bad.
1: Uh finally Julie Cesnovich, where can people find you?
0: Yeah. I'm on Twitter at says, underscore says, um, I'm, I don't tweet much, but I'm a prolific favor. I will fave a lot of, a lot of tweets. Um, I've also like been on Reddit. Um, there are these subreddits where like people post their dating profiles and you can give feedback. So I've been doing that. So if you just want to DM me your dating profile, here's the thing though, here's the twist. I've never done online dating, but people seem to really like my advice. So if you just want some like constructive feedback, help you find love i am willing to offer it what a good
4: use of reddit by the way i know yeah
0: and i keep thinking it's going to be a trap because some people have dm'd me they're like i'm too shy to post this and i'm like oh it's just going to be a dick pic it's just going to be weird (laughs) but no they're just honestly like normal people who want feedback (laughs) it's very charming so yeah yeah uh
1: well again thank you all for being here for this very long journey this very long ordeal yes affair (laughs) hullabaloo that's what you should have said scott is hullabaloo hullabaloo Uh, yeah and thank you at home for listening
0: we'll get you next time bye bye bye